The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Recently, I had the great pleasure to sit down with a friend of mine, Mike Cater Sr. He's the father of my best friend, Mike Cater Jr. And Mike Sr. was a pilot in the Royal Air Force and then went on to an airline career, finishing up as a 747 captain. So in this episode, I got to actually record some of the great stories that Mike's told me over the years, all in one hit while he was visiting New Zealand from his home in Spain. Here's Mike. Okay, I have a full name, Michael John George Cater. And your uh, rank that you got to? I got to Flight Lieutenant. And your service number? 4231692. And you were in the Royal Air Force? The Royal Air Force firm. And your date of birth and place of birth? Okay, I was born in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, in England, on the 21st of September 1943. 
Right. So, do you have any um, very, very early memories of the wartime years, or none at all? No. Basically, my first memories of when we were going to Bermuda, which was in 1946, 47. Okay. My my father, who had been in the navy, his last posting during the war had been to West Africa and when he came back from West Africa he was lucky enough to be then posted to Bermuda. Right, okay. So what sort of um, ships was he on at, at Bermuda? Was he... he was on destroyers initially, he was on the Atlantic convoys, he did uh, one or two, I'm not quite sure, Russian convoys, yep. up to Mermax and Archangel. Um, and then after the war he was on destroyers the HMS Opportune, I know, was one of his ships, and then he was on the Jamaica when it's flagship of the operation into the uh, attack on Suez in 1956. He was on the flagship, which was a light cruiser. Okay. And then he ended up on Minesweepers, uh, which was based in Chatham, which is his home station. Right. So how long did you spend in Bermuda? Bermuda? We were just under three years there. Okay, do you remember any aviation going on there at all? None at all in my day, no, I can't remember. It. Yeah, nothing sticks out. Um, and then from Bermuda, where did you move to? We moved back to London, and then in 1951, my father's post up to Rosyth in Scotland at um, RNAS station, which is Donnybristle. RNAS oh, Donnybristle. Right. Yep, yep, that was a. Um, it was a very active station during the war, I know that. A yeah. lot of the Kiwis that I've talked to in the flu era and went through there. Yeah. Um, so, at, at, at that stage, I guess, was aviation becoming a bit of a thing for you? Were well, I think it's mainly when I was at Donnybrussel. Yeah. Because basically, at that stage of the game, Donnybrussel was a maintenance and servicing base. It was in the main operation for the fleet air arm. And I thought, I'm not quite sure it's still the Royal Naval Air Service at that stage. Anyway, 1950, 51. But uh, what was doing, they were bringing back aircraft in 51, 52 that had been damaged in the Korean War, as far as I remember. Um, a lot of them had undercarriage problems, so they were launching them off the carrier on trolleys and trying to get them on the ground in Donnybrussel in the best state they could um, in order to either repair them or write them off. Okay. Wow. Which meant, as a, a nine year old kid, I saw some fairly fantastic landings. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Uh, I think they'd be called crashes, but they were semi-controlled. Yeah. Well, that's actually really interesting. And you would have seen all sorts of aircraft come through there, I guess. Mainly Sea Furies. Okay. Uh, I seem to remember the Sea Fury was the one that sticks in my mind. Yeah. yeah. And I guess once they were repaired, you'd see them being test flying and stuff as well. Uh, yeah. But they wouldn't... I mean, basically, they just had, as far as I remember, a small holding unit of pilots. Or if they didn't have the holding unit, they would be brought down yeah. or in from somewhere. Because yeah. I think the nearest main naval air station was are both over the other side by the Clyde. Okay, yep, yep. And um, did you live actually on the base? No, we, not initially, initially we moved into a place called North uh, Inverkeevy, which is obviously north north end of the fourth uh, railway bridge actually. Yep. And then we got accommodation in a place called Burnt Island, uh, which is further along the coast, and then eventually moved into my headquarters at INES Donabus. Okay, right. So how long were you there? What, what what age were you when you left? I was about uh, 10, because I went south when I was 10, it was about 1953, because I saw the coronation, which was June in 53, and then we moved south to go to, back to London, North London, Islington, yep. uh, 
where I then went into school and obviously was preparing or trying to get past my 11 plus. But that's time, I mean, it was while I was at the Olympus, all that the concept and the idea of flying sort of appealed to me. Yeah, yeah. And it was when I got to North London, um, which was not a very salubrious area in North London, and I actually mentioned to some kids that I wanted to be a pilot. The answer I got was, not from around here, mate. <laughs> um, and, of course, it was, as I say, in order to be even considered for pilot training in those days, it was after the war, where yeah. there was obviously t- 20 years, 15 years after the war, they were being very selective. Right. And they had gone over to, they were just doing away with <coughs> NTO pilots. And the last uh, lot of, but not in, in 53, they still had them. But I decided I wanted to be an officer. Right. Because um, my father, who was a chief petty officer, said, don't be anything other than if you're going to go in, go in with a commission. Right, okay. Or get a commission. So what, how did you prepare to get in then and try and get through that selection? Well, mainly I, I had to... Well, the basic thing is, that, is that when I was at school, I went to a basic, what was then called a primary school. Yeah. In order to achieve my aims and my objectives and my, my wishes, I realised I had to get... 11 plus passed and then go to a grammar school yep. and that would obviously give me a much better chance uh, because the school leaving age then was 14 right. and so I and if you got to a grammar school then you stayed on or what they call advanced or sorry a higher education you you go down to 16 yep. so I worked hard and I had a very good teacher whose name I still remember Mr Manning who realised my ambition and decided to help me through that and I actually passed my 11 plus fairly high up um, and when I was passed, um, I opted to try and go to a City of London Guild School, okay. which had stated that they would only accept the top 10, 20%. Now, whether this is true or not, of the uh, 11 plus uh, kids who had passed. Um, so eventually, I was accepted at a place called Station as Company's Grammar School, which is City of London Guild School, which was founded some 400 years beforehand. Right. So that was before we had New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, the, the school was actually founded, although there had been some form of education thing, there's apprentice school, apprentices, and the, 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 the Guild of Stationers, since about 1410 or 20s, something like that. Wow. The actual school, I think, was founded. Well, I was there, um, so it was, I think it was 1457, so while I was there, it actually celebrated 400 years celebration. Right, okay. And um, you mentioned your teacher, Mr. Manning, that helped you along the way. Were there other people that had sort of been through the war and uh, in your in your life as well? Most of the people I met in, in in my schooling at grammar school, practically all the teachers were wartime ex service people. I mean, ex service guys. Uh, some of them were very distinguished. But as far as I'm aware, my headmaster, uh, who was about eighty something. Was a guy called Nun, and I think it might have been the Nun who was a, an IFC pilot. Uh, I think he retired as a colonel or, or lieutenant colonel in the Royal Flying Corps. Okay. And in actual fact, he was the CO of 2049 Air Training Corps squadron, which I was joined when I was um, 13 at the yep. grammar school. And he, along with the depth jet master, was also a RFC pilot. Uh, really enthused me and got me going and said hey this is what we've got to do and they encouraged me and at 16 I got a I was put forward to go for a, an application for a gliding scholarship yeah. 
which I did at Hendon, which because I did at Hendon I could only do an A and B because Hendon was then in the built up area. Right. And so you couldn't actually fly your rather antiquated gliders outside because the gliders crushed with their TC 16 year olds on board wasn't appreciated in North London. <laughs> but it was the old Hendon Air, Aerodrome, which of course meant that we flew over. In fact, one of the things you came across the top of the officer's mess, not below 200 feet. Um, but that was one of the, the lining up points for touching down at Hendon. Okay. And then again, Josh, um, or Josh, because he was, his nickname was Josh, uh, because it was a biblical thing. Joshua was the son of Nun. Ah, okay. That's where he got his nickname from. Yep. Uh, he then put me forward for, uh, he actually filled in the application and told me he filled in the application for me to do a, a flying scholarship. Now, I don't know, but the rumour was that for every year there was something between 10 and 15 thousand people used to apply for flying scholarship well certainly thousands I don't know I think those figures are probably thousands used to apply for flying scholarships and I think there was only five given wow. and I actually got one of the five wow that's pretty good so then I set off thing went to RF not RF I went to Elstree um, in well that would be I would be just 17 um, so it'd be 1960 Yep. Well, I did a flying scholarship over Easter in a month and a bit, just over five weeks, I think it was. And you do 30 hours, and at the end of it, you, you then used to come out with a pilot pilot's license, okay. which was all paid for. Nice. And uh, at that stage, six months after that, I left school and then went to college. Okay. So Elstree, um, back then, that whole area of Elstree was a very, very busy film area wasn't it that's film, right film yeah. and it's very busy little airport actually right. did you see much going on were they doing any filming there while you were there not that I remember no nah. but again true. again all the all the guys there were um, all ex-military um, yep. Mike Buxton was one of the instructors I remember he was a, I think he was an ex-bomber pilot and there was a guy who who was the boss of the flying school there was a, it was London flying school that's where I did it and he was quite a famous gliding man, actually. I've forgotten his name now. But anyway, he was quite well known in flying circles then, again, right. wartime. And so when I, I then went to college, I went down to Southampton under the auspices and of the Ordnance Survey to do a, a surveyor's course. And it was just a, basically it was a surveyor's course that, uh, for cartographical surveying. Yep. And they, normally it was two and a half years, and they were trying to compress it into a year. So instead of doing two or three days study and the rest sort of most about, we literally had five days concentrated work. Right. And um, a year later, just over a year later, we finished the course. I wasn't very happy with surveying. It was, it was a good job and good people and everything else. But I really was bent on going for the Air Force or going flying. Yeah. So I then applied to the Air Force down at Southampton just before I left. Um, without telling my parents, um, was then told I was accepted for a direct entry commission, okay. which I then resigned about two weeks after I qualified, which was a bit of a, an upset because they turned around and said they, because I had not, in their opinion, completed the course, they refused to give me any qualifications. Oh, wow. So, but that was fine as far as I was concerned. Okay. Right, so you... Um so you then got in as a as an officer into the area. Well, no, you you went well, down as an officer trainee. Oh, uh, officer cadet. A cadet, yeah. Went down to uh, 
I mean, obviously, the, the thing was, all this was going on. I had to go, initially, for my, my gliding scholarship, you didn't do too much. You just did basic selection locally. But for your flying scholarship, I had to go down to then RAF Hornchurch, which is the Air Crew Selection Centre, and you go through, I think we were there five days with fairly intensive selection tests, everything else, before I became one of the guys that was actually awarded a flying scholarship. Yes. Uh, then a couple of years later, or a year later, when I went in, it changed the Air Crew Selection Centre, it was big in Hill, and basically they waved me through all the aptitude and air crew selection things, but then I would did major, or that's mainly they were concentrating on the officer selection, which was leadership exercises, um, discussion groups, um, obviously your world knowledge, local knowledge, political knowledge, all these things are questions. Yep. And then I was informed only about a week later, it's quite surprising me, that I'd been accepted for a Jack Tenter Commission and, uh, and then went down to RAF, um, oh, what do you call it? Oh, South Cerny in Gloucestershire. Okay, yeah. Yep. Which was the uh, officer, initial officer training school. Right. Now, the other place to go was, of course, to Sandhurst, which is a full three year course, which I didn't do. So we did six months um, officer training plus um, the basics of air navigation, all these sort of things, which I'd already done in the air training course. So, yep. And most of the people there, I mean, when I joined my course, I think there were 96 on the course. Um, the selection was pretty tight, though, because so I recollect that when I went to Biggin Hill, there was something like about 90 blokes on the week I was there. And I only ever saw one other bloke that I recognised as being in that week. And when I went to South Cerny, uh, I think the course was 96, and I think my course passed out with about 38 of us. Right. Um, I think it's 38 or 40. Chops. Yeah. But they were fairly selective. Noted. But I might add that we were now approaching 1962. And as you remember, in 1962, there was a bit of a crisis building up in Cuba. And the Air Force was now suddenly realising that they wanted pilots. Right. So I don't know the figures, but I mean, because on pilot training, um, normally the, the chop rate was sort of accepted as far as I understand about 50 percent 50, 50 getting through was kind of a very good course mainly the time it was, it was over half of the guys on the initial pilot training course were chopped okay I guess most of those two would have been if they was up to uh, up to a certain level they would have been offered other roles within the in the air force in yeah. the air force yeah. yeah most of the guys I joined up with being being ground crew, I never went for air crew. Mm. Um, most of them had been through that pilot selection yeah. and come that route. So yeah. Well, I mean, most of the time, I mean, as pilot thing, if you failed the pilot course, they would, if you still had the officer versus. Remember, we were we were acting pilot officer. We actually had a commission. They said yeah. um, they would maybe be offered uh, AEO, air electronics officer, or uh, navigator. Oh, yes, yeah. Um I can't obviously look back and that's 50 years ago, the numbers who did what. Yeah. But I know that, uh, and again, when I did my baby pilot training on Jet Provost, which is at um, number four FTS, which, yeah, four, I think it's four FTS, uh, RF Leamy in North Yorkshire, we started off with 26 and we were one of the biggest courses to pass out. We were number nine Jet Provost course there. And we actually passed out with 18 pilots, which is so the course in front of us, I think, only passed out with about seven, wow. 26 at started. Wow. So you, your first flying course in the RF was straight onto the Jet Provost. Yeah. 
but, the, you, but you'd obviously flown before. I had flown chipmunks, and while I was at Elstie, in those days, <coughs> things weren't quite as strict as they are now, I had to dabble at other aeroplanes, yeah. as long as you didn't put it in your logbook. And ah, I, right. Yep. And as I think I told you, I, I flew the Tiger Moth. That's right. Um, but strictly, you know, just as a, a, a ride, and nothing was logged or anything else like this, because, yeah. you, you, you know, you was 17, 18, you didn't realise what... Know, what how important it was the log hours yes um so just to get airborne was great fun and i say my only mistake i mean i've been flying the chipmunk and i got airborne in um, in the tiger and away i went and i came in and the we had a gospel tube between the other guy and me yeah. which i couldn't hear too much and i could hear him yelling at the back and i thought well everything's all right and this particular thing i was in the ASI was a flat piece of wood up on the strut, like that, and turn and slip was a piece of string tied to the other one, sort of thing, <laughs> well, a piece of cotton in the back, and that was sort of basic instruments, and you actually had an ASI, but that was about it. Yeah. The ASI was very basic, but yeah. the main one was the, and um, only had a pressure thing for the engine, I seem to remember a suction, a vacuum thing for the engine, very little engine controls. But what he was yelling about, as I discovered some minutes later or seconds later, when I touched down on the concrete runway at Elstree, was the fact that this had a tail skid and not a tail wheel. So the next thing I knew, there were sparks coming everywhere. Oh. It's a metal tail skid, screaming, which is what he was trying to tell me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, right. <laughs> so I didn't do too well first trip. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so what I was going to say um, with, the, with the jet provost, um, that course, you'd obviously flown before, but would they have selected people who'd all flown oh, before? No, no. Or were I there mean, people there that had never flown there before? There were, no, the, the concept of training in 1962, basic training, was the Air Force, and as far as I'm aware, the only Air Force in the world did it, did for all through jet training. The first airplane you flew would be a jet. Right. And all being well, depending on what types you went on, you would always fly a jet. So we had guys, um, I mean, I remember one, John Hewitt, big tall bloke, and he'd never flown in his life before. And his first airplane that he ever flew was a jet post. Wow. So he hadn't even been as a passenger? Or? He'd obviously looked at a passenger, but the yeah. first time he was flying an airplane, his basic training on an aircraft, on a jet aircraft, was a jet post. That's quite amazing. Yeah. So we did, uh, I think it was what, we did 120 as on the Jetpost Mark III, and then the last 40 hours we did on the Jetpost Mark IV. Okay. 160 hour course. So, going from the, the Chipmunk into it, uh, into the Jet Province Mark III, that's a huge step. Well, it's not actually. I mean, the, the Province was a very nice airplane, it's much the fact. It started with the, the Province one, which was a sort of bigger, more powerful Chipmunk, and then the Province II, three. and then the four was the initial Jet Province, the, which is a, the Two, I think, was a very ungainly-looking thing, which was like the the old jet promise, but with a with a nose wheel, it had a tail wheel, and, and they virtually the instrumentation was the same. Yeah, they just stuck a jet engine in it. Right, right, okay. Um, so you had no no problem transitioning then, and, and no, you know, no, but I mean the, the training was so good um, and very thorough um, and fairly demanding. Yeah. That you cope with it, and if you weren't coping, they would try and help you. But if you didn't make it, then you would get chopped. And that was it. So, what about the people who had never flown before? 
did they do better going straight in with that RF training, or did I, they, or did they struggle more than the guys? No, I think I don't remember on my course or any of the other courses. I mean, while I was at Leeming, there were, there were three other courses. There were four courses went through at a time. Yep. I remember, of course, in 1962, there were four basic flying training scores in the in the, the RAF. Yep. Uh, so there were a lot of pilots going under training at the time, and again, the political situation in 1962 was such that they were trying to push both through. Uh, but I don't remember anybody having difficulty because it's the first time they've flown jets. Oh, okay. Um, that, that's a real testament to the training system, then, isn't it? Mm. The preparation that goes into it before you even get in the plane. Oh, yes. Uh, and we all know that from air forces around the yeah. world, but um, it, it is pretty It's pretty impressive to start off on a jet. Oh, yes. I mean, and it's, it's nice. I mean, the jet probably, I mean, the chip pump used to do about 45 knots, where the jet probably used to go up to a maximum sort of 90 knots or something like this. But, in the screaming dive, after you spent several hours getting to height, you could actually achieve 0.73 Mac, in a, a, right. yeah, Mac 0.73. Yep, oh, excellent. So, um, I mean, I, I always understood that RF pilot training they started on something like a chipmunk and then they went to something like a bulldog and then got into the jets. No, no, this is so, way back. So was there just that one period that you went through where... There was quite a long period. I mean, they only introduced back to propeller training. Um, the only propeller training, aside piston training, was if you were in a university air squad. Uh, then you would yes. do that. The university air squadrons had chipmunks and their, you know, their, their airfields. Right. Which, and obviously the, a lot of their... Uh, university air squadrons were actually at uh, um, working Royal Air Force stations. Yes, right, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So, but no, as far as I remember, from about 1960, 61, through to about the late 60s, I think that they it was all jet training. I mean, the, the concept is you went, um, in my day initially, it was the jet provost, the three, then the four, then they introduced they used to be then onto the vampire or the meteor but then they introduced the nat yep um which was one hell of a high speed pursuit ship yes. um i mean that really went that was a, a fighter airplane and in fact when they selected the nat as a training aircraft i know everybody most people I remember were quite sort of surprised because we all thought the, the, they'd use the Hunter T-7 because of course at the stage in, in 1963-64 we had hunters all over the place. Yeah. We had God knows 20 squadrons of hunters in the Air Force or something like this. Yeah. So the, and the proven trainer, the T-7, and that's what everybody thought. Of. And so it was a shock to everybody when the following that was announced. Okay. So, so you did the was how many hours was one hundred and sixty. One hundred and sixty, yeah. and then how long? How long in real that, time was? That's a, a year. Just not a year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, then you move on to the Nats. I moved on to Nats. Yeah. yeah, my instructor wasn't very happy, and because of the fact he said that uh, the Nat he considered was, I mean, basically the Nat was a leading aircraft for the Lightning, right. and he said this is a very hot ship. Um, I don't know if you'll be up to it, but uh, when I went, I did it. I went solo in nine hours, but the Nat was having a lot of problems. A lot of problems. They had uh, based in Anaria Valley in North Wales, 
and the technical side of the aircraft, there was so few aircraft. I think we had 64 aircraft. I think we might have had 56 up at RAF Valley. And I seem to recollect from the time I was there, the most we ever had serviceable at any one time. I think the biggest launch we ever did was eight aircraft in the morning. And then half an hour later, we were down to four. Now, that was between three training squadrons going through. So we actually, because they had to keep us busy, I actually went through the ground school twice, so it might two and a half times to keep because there weren't aircraft available for us. Right, just to stop you being idle. And, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, what was the what were the issues that the Nats were suffering? Well, they suffered unserviceability. It's only years later they worked out why, because um, it's susceptible to salt water, um, and of course. RAF Valley is surrounded by salt water. Okay. You actually take off and land on two of them. It's over the sea. Um, but it was, um, that's what I understand. I mean, but this stage, I mean, basically, we got to the stage of my course, and I was on number seven in that course, um, where there was 14 of us kicked off, and they were saying virtually we will not be able to complete this course, and we have courses lined up. And so they decided to start thinning out the courses. And basically, what they said, as far as I know, is you know, if you're not in the top half, you're going. Um, so, and I wasn't in the top half. My instructor back on Jet Probus, Colin Hardy, was an ex-hunter man, yeah. um, had already sort of said to me that you know he felt I would have my work cut out to do it. But he, I had been initially posted onto uh, Vastis. Okay. But he had that posting changed because he reckoned that me as a person was aggressive enough to be a ground attack pilot. And he wanted me to go that channel. And although they, they said, well, you know, he has to go on that. He went and argued on my behalf and blocked me on that. But he wasn't overly happy. And as I say, I wasn't in the top echelon of them. And so eventually, after I think it was nearly five months there, out of a six-month course, yeah. and done 19 and a half hours, uh, where it was a 70-hour course, then they said, and I was then rethought to, and they said, we're not, you know, you're the pilot. No, you're just not up to because we were cutting back. Yeah. So I then had to loiter around for nearly six, seven months waiting for a varsity course. Okay. But in their wisdom, the Air Force sent me to RAF Topcliffe, which was the AEO training school, and they were training on varsities. Right. So I was supposed to go into station headquarters, and I had a chat with somebody, and eventually I found myself going on to the staff of the the actual AEO school and chatting to a few pilots. So I then, because I was obviously a qualified pilot at that stage again, was slotted in and, and I flew as a co-pilot on Vastis. Right, right. So you find as a staff pilot, yeah, taking, that, taking the um, air yeah. electronics operators around. And yeah, with obviously with the captain. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so when eventually I went down to do my Vastis course, it was a little bit of a anti-climax yeah. at that stage I had more hours on the, on the varsity than the course consisted of and, <laughs> um, and it was just you know ever so nice to, to just be able to sit back not sit back because you're never allowed to sit back in the Air Force yeah. but basically after all the training I'd done it, and because the guys at the AEO school the pilots the staff pilots knew where I was going they were giving me all additional training right yeah yeah got all the good t- tips yeah. and basically I was supposed to sit there as a sort of non-operative radio operator and all that sort of thing. Right, okay. <clears throat> so tell me tell me about the Varsity. What was that like to fly? Uh, the Varsity was called the Pig. Ah. Uh, 
and that more or less tells you about flying qualities. Yeah. Um, it was it was a complicated airplane. It was a sleeve valve engines and tourist engines. Um, they were complicated. You had pitch control, all this sort of thing. Um, but I mean, you had to be very careful. But I had a bit of an accident um, when I was flying because we used to do um, asymmetric training with an engine shut down. Yeah. You would literally shut and fly on one. And she could be very tricky on one engine. And one day we were coming in and I was with a guy called Doug Irwin, who was a master pilot. And I was flying the aircraft. And then all of a sudden we ran out of airspeed and ideas and everything else because there's wind shear because of Oakington, my zone, there's a railway line. Yeah. And that you're affected by the train goes past and the train went past so that all of a sudden we ran out of airspeed and ideas we started sinking so we actually I kept the aircraft uh, I kept control we landed about two or three feet short of the runway but rolled onto the runway did no damage okay um, Doug Owen was then questioned about what he'd done and why hadn't he taken control and then he said I couldn't have done anything and you know flying was the case I did it anyway so yeah yeah <laughs> so no no blame was apportioned anywhere and uh, you know, everything carried on okay all right but I wonder I mean I had done a hundred hours on Varsity before I went to I wonder if I hadn't done whether that might have been a different result yeah yeah exactly but after I, there were several accidents like that or near accidents like that and eventually by the time just after I left the Vastis they had decided they were not going to do engine shutdowns they would they would just do throttle back yeah. and in actual fact as you're probably well aware that the um, with an engine throttle back it's more difficult than actually with the engine shut down yeah. Yeah. except you've got a bit of response but there again the response from the Centurus was, was all right but it wasn't exactly the best in the world those were like they were fighter engines weren't they they used to run the sea fury I think so, yeah. Yeah, so you must have a shitload of power. Oh, there was, yeah, but it's, it's getting it sorted out. It's like, it's like the meter and load a load of power, but yeah. only guys went like that in the yeah. meter because one came on a bit past than the other. And of course, in those days, with jet engines, the wind up time was critical and you couldn't slam. I mean, in my later flying with jet engines, you could slam them all over the place and yeah. you got instant response. But yeah. in the early days of jet engines, one thing you didn't do, and, and the number of, and we're talking hundreds of meteor pilots who killed themselves because of the fact they tried slamming it, yeah. and one can come out and it's on its back and in yeah. from a low level overshoot. Yeah, it's incredible. Because of the response time of the of the, the spool up, as they used to call it. Yeah. And in fact, they used to talk about spool up times. Um, but obviously, the, I mean, the gnat, you know, that went like off a shovel. But it was, I mean, it's great. I mean, when I was on the now, sort of 18 and a half, they're talking about it, and one of your first or second trips is you go leaping air skyward and you climb up 48,000 feet, roll over the back, and you go supersonic, which is not bad for an 18 year old. <laughs> That's year old. pretty good. And then you go a medium level uh, nav radio across country, and then you go down to the Bristol Channel and you, you dive down into the, not above the Bristol Channel, ideally. Then you set off and go, and the most fun thing you can ever do, which is to go through Wales from south to north at about 400 knots and allegedly <coughs> at 250 feet. <laughs> um, which has got to be the best fun ever for anybody to do. I mean, thereafter, of course, when I actually, when you start the course, you're, you're, too, you're working too hard to have fun. You've got to do, you've got to set exercise. But that first time you go through on that low level, your instructor 
is demo, doing you a demo, and that is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> a bit scary at times because the one bit where you come up to a place called Betsy Coid in North Wales, which is on the A5, and you come screaming past, and actually, as you drive your car down into Betsy Coid, if you're lucky, you'd suddenly, and I remember going past it and looking up and seeing cars and start faces on the A5 as you <laughs> zip past below. <laughs> and then you go around and you're, you're heading towards a mountain called Triffin which subsequently I've been climbing on and you go hurtling towards it and as you fly towards it you look so you're going to go straight to the mountain and you're low level but in actual fact there's the Lynn Valley and as you get there you rack it over you go over a 90 degree bank 110 degree bank over the top and down that valley which he doesn't tell you about the first time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but again when I I used to go climbing and then thereafter they used to go through battle pairs and all that sort of thing when I was climbing there we used to, we'd hear some, and all the climbers used to curse the blasted Air Force and say, and they go to carry on, and I used to stand still, and they say, What? And I said, Because oh, I knew 30 seconds later, number two would be coming through. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, what sort of speed did the bastard get up to? With specific <laughs> engines like that, it must have got, must have had a fierce speed. No, 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 it didn't, only about 90 knots or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. 90 knots? Yeah. That's like a swordfish. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's 10 to a century. It's a sleeve valve engine, I know that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it'd either be that or Hercules. Hercules. Might be the Hercules. But even, that, even those are big engines. Yeah. So. But I mean, it's a big engine yeah. when you look yeah, at yeah. it. Um, I'm, that's the only model I haven't got of the, of the aircraft I've flown. Right. So I'll climb. Right. You don't get many vasty bottles. No. Yeah. They're all made there. You can get them, but they're very expensive. Okay. Never got one. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so from um, from the the varsity training, which was basically to convert you on to get heavies, to heavies, yeah. yeah. Um, you would then go on to a squadron, I guess. No, you would then go and do what called operational conversion unit. Oh, of now, going at the time, there was the the guys on the Vasties were selected either for the maritime fleet, which was Shackleton's, yeah. and I think it was then the Shackleton Mark One and Two that were going. I think the two are just coming in. Um, I don't know, one had the tail wheel, and then the next one, I think it was the three, was the first one with the nose wheel on the shackle. Right. And I think that was the two, and I think the three was the one that had the jet engines, the Vipers stuck in the wings. But, um, so, as a Varsity, which you were going to go to Shackleton's, or then onto a transport fleet, which would be either the Beverly, the Hastings, or the Argosy. Yep. Now, obviously, the Beverly and the Hastings are quite old airplanes. Yeah. And I opted, and because I'd spent about four months waiting at the Ministry of Defence, I opted to go on the Argosy. Uh, and that was a bit of a lucky break in my career because I was working for four months on a job at the Ministry of Defence at Theobald Road in London, Holborn. And it was the postings department. Uh, we were supposed to be, two of us were supposed to be up dating the farting system which took a whole month to do yeah and so we were sitting on our backsides doing nothing so we used to sort of generally get involved and in going around the offices and chatting to people and i got in with a bad crowd on a friday night which <laughs> when ministry of defense used to shut down i got into the air force tradition which i first learned when i was uh, at rf leaming is that on a Friday night, at five o'clock is happy hour. Right. So we made our own happy hour and the best pubs around Holborn. So I used to go drinking with, of course, most of the chaps on duty in Ministry of Defence 
are sort of wing commanders and squadron leaders yep. and above. So I got myself with a bad bunch of chaps who led me astray. <laughs> and one of the quirks of this is that, and I can't remember his name, I should remember it, but when I was due to go down to Royal Air Force Thorny Island on the south coast to start my Argosy conversion course, uh, I was called into an Air Commodore's office, who I used to go drinking with, yep. so I probably can't remember his name, because it's probably Dave or Fred I knew him as, not Wing, uh, Air Commodore Santa, yep. who then said to me, sign this bit of paper, and he had a piece of paper with a, a white sheet over the top of it, and I said, sorry sir, you know, I don't sign anything without saying, he said, it's to your advantage, and I said, mm, I'm still not very happy about it, he said, Mike, we've been for the odd beer or two, don't you trust me? I said, well... <laughs> and he said, I'll lift the white bit of paper up. And he said, I'm going to count to three. And he said, if you don't sign it, then that's it. So he lifted it up and I saw it was a posting notice because I'd been dealing with it and he put it down again. Signed it. Um, <clears throat> basically, I'd signed provisional to me passing the ARGSI course. I'd signed a posting to 215 squad now in the Far East, which right. is what I wanted. Excellent. So I've actually signed my own posting notice, but it was unheard of and, and certainly legal and certainly <laughs> nobody else knew about it. <laughs> That's brilliant. And that's one of those quirks. I mean, the, the Air Force in those days it was a, very much a friendly place. And again, all the guys I flew with, I mean, um, they were all Second World War guys. Yeah. And they were a super bunch of guys um, and they'd had a camaraderie and you know when I actually joined not my first Irish school my second Irish school there was one of the pilots there he used to call us his young warriors but he was a you know he was a, a, a World War Two bomber pilot and he'd lost a lot of friends and we were young boys to him and we, he, he looked after us and he didn't try and give us rollicking to him we made mistakes he tried to help us yeah. You know, and, and that most of them were like that. Yeah. They got through an awful period, you know, six years or years of the war, and seen their friends killed. But they wanted us to succeed. Exactly. That's what the feeling I got, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you're on your way out to the middle, out to the far east. Far east, yeah. yeah. Uh, but by the reason I chose the far east, because again, because of the, there wasn't much work for us to do at this Ministry of Defence thing. I, one of the guys there was a wing commander. who was ex. Um, Flight commander on 511 squad and say, well, Look, I can arrange it, get you super new me posting down there. Why don't you go on a trip? So I went down to uh, RF Lynham, as it was then, and went to the Britannia squadron. And they said, Well, we can fix you up a trip. Where do you want to go? So the first trip they fixed up, I went out to Cyprus and back, which is out to Cyprus two or three days in Cyprus, and then back again because we used to use Cyprus as a holding unit um, on our transit through to the Far East. So we'd go there, and crews normally used to hold there for two or three days, and then come back to UK or go through to the fire. But if there was any eventuality of something going wrong, then they had a, 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 a say a nucleus of pilots and navigators and engineers at RAF Akaturi, so they could utilise them, right. which would come in useful later, as I found out. Um, and then another trip they did out to Singapore. And, and of course, I thought when I got to Singapore, I was there for a week, and it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and there was an Argosy squad in there. That's why I, I, when I went back to Missy Fans, oh God, I'd love to go to the 215 squad. And it all came to fruition. Right. 
So where was uh, T15 based when you arrived there? When I arrived there, I arrived Chaggy. And um, what was the date that you arrived there? I arrived there in November 1965. Okay. So at that stage, uh, the um, Malayan confrontation was... Oh, it started still in 63. Yeah. And it was still on. In fact, that was the briefing. I joined your first squad, did the six months at, at, at Thorny Island, then came out, qualified on the Argus, he posted to Changi. When we got to 215 squadron, um, you were interviewed by the station, by the squadron commander, it was a guy called Don Gray, Wing Commander Don Gray, who was probably the loveliest guy I've ever met in my life. An absolute superb, an officer and a gentleman, par excellence, a navigator. And when we, the new boys arrived, we were wheeled in and he made a little speech along the lines of, you've been told that you've got six months on probation. Well, he said, on this one, it's not true. We're actively involved in confrontation, which is, despite what the politicians say, is a war. It's not a basic action. He said, but we have to call it that. He said, and I cannot have guys on this squadron that I can't utilise in a fully operational role. So basically you'll go through extra training and in three weeks time you'll be going out to Borneo and you'll be expected to function as a full member of an operational crew and if you're not coming up to standard within that three weeks you will go back to the UK. There's no place for you here. So it's fairly intensive. And then you go to Borneo, which I did uh, Christmas, you know, some two months, well, I think well, it's a month after I arrived there. Um, and that flying is fantastic and I wish I had that DVD that I had yeah. copied yeah. and I must, I'm going to get back and, and send it to you or send one of it if I can get it done properly. Yeah. But it's basically, it's um, eight mil camera work done by a guy called Don Parkinson who was one of our NAVs and it will show you the sort of flying we used to do and as a youngster it was to fly a big four-engine airplane in those sort of terrains, doing the job we did was magic. Yeah. It was, it was scary. It was exciting. It was tremendous fun, and I'll never forget it. And of course, there is where I formed all the friendships that I still have fifty years later. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, that I can still remember the pack of names of all the squadron, and we still have a squadron reunion. And every year I go back, although I've lived in Spain for fourteen years. Every year I go back to the United Kingdom. I go back to RF Benson, and we have a Argus reunion. Yeah. And uh, they're still the guys I know. And we all come to the conclusion, as I certainly did, that on 215 squad, and there wasn't a bad joker there. They were all good blokes. Right. And that stemmed up from I mean, AC Plonks all the way up to the squad commander. Everybody. I cannot remember any arguments or nastiness or anything in the three years I was there. Just having an absolutely fantastic time. Brilliant. And growing up seeing the, the world as yeah. it was then because of course confrontation finished in August of 66 and didn't know what to do with this so they said oh okay well go around Australia for two or three weeks or go and in fact in 66 I came to New Zealand right. first time yep um, which was a bit different from New Zealand it is now <laughs> yeah I bet so um, before we get into more about the confrontation there. I'm just wondering, can you tell me a little bit about the Argosy as an aircraft? What was it like to fly and what was its quirks? And Well, it was a nice airplane to fly. Um, its quirk was that it had a 10,000 pound floor because 
they decided to beef up the civilian, the AW660, I think it was, or 650, the initial one, to beef it up, give it an airdrop capability by putting what they call the pen nib doors on the back, yeah. um, and to carry the Saracen scout car. So in order to do that, they had to make the design of the aircraft so that you had a turret on the Saracen and it had to go backwards and all this sort of thing, and the floor had to be beefed up. I think the only time it ever carried a Saracen car, an armoured car, was in the trials. <laughs> and it never ever was required to carry one again. So the disadvantage was it was limited in its performance and its distance because of this 10,000 pounds of floor. Right. Um, now, in Borneo, the aircraft performed exemplary. Mainly, I think, well, not mainly, the standard of training that we received and was passed on to us was really top-notch because we used to fly in incredibly difficult uh, drop zones. Yeah. Um, when we were training <coughs> for the tactical role, you have the various roles. You have one-ton containers, which you carry eight, which go out from the back of the aircraft. You have SEAC, which is Southeast Asia container which is low level we would drop from 50 feet by just kicking out the door yeah and then we had uh, stress platforms and then we had big stress platforms now these used to weigh 22 2200 uh, pounds and we could take two of those which was a very exciting ride because it, it was the aircraft you'd have to fly it at 800 feet and what you would do, you would actually dive it a little bit before you knew you were going to drop it. Drop these two of them going out in what they call a daisy chain. Yep. Um, you know the second you'd have a drogue shoot go out, yep. that uh, snaps a shear and then it pulls out the whole thing. And as it pulls out, it then deploys the main chutes on the, on the load. But in order to get the thing moving, the best way was to assist it a little bit. So you used to dive it before you got to it, and then you'd pull up, so you actually slight climb as you went through 800 feet. They then released the load, which was done by the navigator. Um, it would drop the drogue chute, which was hanging on the back door, which would swing out, deploy it, and pull it. When the load started trundling, and you can hear it, and you can feel it, as you can feel the second platform, which is first up the airplane, start to move, you start pushing forward. Because as it gets on the back sill, you have now just suddenly lost four and a half tons. Yep. And you're now, the nose, and as this weight is sat on the back and the nose is pulled up. Right. So you start pushing forward and putting on, well, you've got full power on anyway, but it's do things. And if you don't do that, you can be in trouble. We had the knowledge that if we'd ever lost an engine failure, once that drogue was streamed to pull the main load out, we wouldn't have got out of it. The aircraft would not have been able to fly. So you did your drop with full power? Virtually, yeah. Oh, okay. Gosh. But, I mean, you're, you're flying at 140 knots. But you, you see, the big thing, that's on an SSP release. With one-ton containers, you go around and do them one at a time. Yeah. Now, that's what we did in Borneo. Now, the, the drop zones that we practice on, and we were, were given, I think the minimum drop zone per the book uh, that we practice on in the UK was something like 200 yards long and 100 yards wide. Well, when we got out to Borneo, you're dropping into 50 yards by about 60 yards, maybe 100 yards, yeah. 
clearings, but there's 200 foot high trees and then quite a few of the drop zones we went into, you couldn't actually see. They used to put a balloon on a piece of string up. Oh, really? And the navigators used to know, and the pilots used to know what they were doing, and you would actually release without actually seeing the DZ. Wow. And we'd get it in. Um, mind you, we used to get a few wildies, you know, and the <coughs> various accidents occurred. <laughs> you know, we had one where we had a dropping a load of, I was on the aircraft, a load of picketing spikes, which where you put the barbed wire in. And they got airborne, or they, as they left the airplane, the tyres broke. And I think they used to go out in bundles of about 10. And so all of a sudden you had these sort of 15 foot long bits of steel with the points on them, hurtling towards the ground, like rather big arrows. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and it appears there was some, the story goes, how true it is, that there was a certain gentleman sat in the, the little hut. And all of a sudden there was a loud poof, and this, this spear went straight through. And, I missed him by inches. I don't know which part of anatomy it missed by inches, but <laughs> I was given a bit of a shock. Yeah, I'll <laughs> Put him off courage for ages. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, um, uh, at the drop zone, they just used the balloon, they didn't use smoke or anything? Like oh, yeah, we had smoke. Oh, yeah, smoke. Yeah, yeah. But we had to, uh, we, we, we obviously, to get the, the cart point, computed air release point, because obviously you go in. But in the Far East, a lot of it, because of the mountains that we're in, we're in quite high mountains and, and tight little valleys. I mean, a lot of times you, you'd have to, and also, a lot of our DZ are right against the Indonesian border. I mean, literally, I'm talking yards, you know, 50, 100 yards. If that, in fact, there's one um, DZ, I remember, you could, they had radio con uh, radar controlled guns, and as you came, and we used to get the brine up, and disappear around the back of a mountain, go around a few rivers, and then come up again, and then turn on. And as you came on, you could see the guns start to point towards you, right. and the Indonesian guns would actually follow you around while you're doing the run. Wow. In fact, so much so, we used to have this discussion. And as we were coming into the DZ, um, the navigator used to say, mm, of course, you know, if they do open fire, you, first officer or co-pilot, in the air force, you co-pilots, you'll be the first one to get shot. Well, of course, you think about it, and then you say, no, wait a minute, they're not going to open fire just when we're sideways on, because we were actually below the level of these guns. Yeah. They're going to fire when we're sort of in plan view. So you're lying in the bottom of the aircraft, so you'll be the first one to get shot. <laughs> we used to have this discussion as we were doing these runnings. <laughs> so um, just to get the situation there uh, on Borneo, Borneo is a big island, hmm. um, and half of it is Malaysia. Well, no. Or Malaya. Malaysia is was yeah no yeah, less than half I think is oh, actually Malaysian territory yeah. and the rest is, is Indonesia. Indonesia yeah and along the border you've got British and Allied troops or uh, yeah. you know, Kiwis well, Australians Kiwis Australian yeah um, basically we had a situation as far as I'm aware that our total force of Commonwealth um, forces was something like about ten and a bit thousand strong. And there was something like about 100,000, 150,000 Indonesians against the border. Um, now, obviously, with the length of the border and the nature of the land, it was practically impossible for the army to patrol all this. So we worked very much on what was established back in 1948 during the Malaysian campaign, or the Malaya campaign. Yeah. And that is that we worked at this thing called Hearts and Minds. So the Dayak and Yiban. Um, and they're the same people, except one a C Dayak and, and um, the Iban, you know, are the C Dayak, then the Dayaks are the ones that are in the jungle. Yep. 
um, as far as I see, oh, that way or that other way around. But we used to have liaison officers in there, members of our armed forces, plus the fact we used to put medical teams in to visit their villages frequently. Yep. And if ever there was any sickness, we would give them first aid. And if ever there was any problems, we had the helicopters. We had two helicopters called the based in Kuching and detachments up in Lebuan and in Tawa and around the corner. At, um, I've got the name of the place there. Anyway, um, we would say to the natives or to the locals, you know, if you're, we'll get you to hospital, we'll look after you, we'll keep you good. And they helped us because we had so much information. I mean, when we used to brief in Kuching, we used to have an army officer who was a major, and his call sign was Glowworm because he was a general liaison officer, and of course, Glowworm. Yeah. <laughs> um, he used to stand up at the briefing because he was being army. And we used to have the army there because of Royal Corps Transport, man the aircraft and help dump the loads. But we always used to take the mickey out of him because some of his briefings were, were phenomenal. They really were. I mean, I remember one briefing where we were sat there. Of course, these things, we, we used to fly from dawn to dusk. So this is pre-dawn. You sat there. And he starts, you know, you've done, you, you find out where your drop is going to be and how you're going to get there. The nav's doing the planning and all this sort of thing. And you're getting the general briefing. And, and part of the general briefing, you know, along with the Met, which is a little bit an unsigned, unknown science there, because nobody knew what it was, because yeah. an army would look at it and say, mm, well, it's cloud. Um, if we could actually get radio communication, which is unusual, he, we'd get this message, what's the weather? He said, uh, cloudy. <laughs> but is always cloudy, so yeah. <laughs> what helps that? And um, so basically, every time we went, it was a place to go fly and suck it and see. And sometimes you go in high level and spiral down into the valleys, or the other time, which is better, you go low level, which was quite good fun as well. Yeah. And um, but this major stood up one day and said, "Right, uh, gentlemen, um, six days ago, one of our patrols found a cigarette end in the jungle." So, of course, there were hoots of laughter from us saying, wow, that's, that's intelligent. The Indonesian soldiers smoke. <laughs> and he said, um, no, 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 don't be facetious, chaps. And, of course, we were always facetious because he was army. And um, he said, no, it was actually a type of cigarette, whichever it was, you know, Rothmans. And, and he said, hey, he smoked for all the chips, obviously thinking of his health. <laughs> and um, no, he said, no, in actual fact, what we did... We've got a batch number off this, and we have traced it back through the. And it was a British made cigarette, the Rothmans, yeah. and we traced it back through the Rothmans factory, and we know that this and verses that this batch of cigarettes was in Jakarta on this date. We know at the time there was a training regiment in the Jakarta area, so what we're now saying is that we think that the regiment that is on this sector border is not fully trained it's a training regiment. so what we're going to do is we're actually going to pull troops out of this sector of the border because we don't think they're a threat right and when you're listening to this and obviously when the serious bit sets in there's all this work on the fact they found a cigarette end Amazing. because we could not i mean we were in kuching we're 22 miles i think from the indonesian border and if and it's a it's a valley it's a flat plain and if the Indonesians want to come down that road, they were going to be half an hour from crossing the border until they went and took out our main airfield. Wow. So where was the airfield? At Kuching. We were based at Kuching. But we also based at Lebuan as well. Right. So that was up in an island off the coast, further up near Jefferson, which is now Kota Kinabalu. Okay. 
Now, um, with the uh, with the situation where you're going and doing these drops to the troops up on the borders, am I right in thinking uh, that um, each day your squadron would send out aircraft to all different points along the? No, border? we only have one aircraft. We only have one aircraft. Right, basically, yeah. So, so you're supplying, say, troops in one area one day, then the we next the day, you, yeah, the next day to, you go to the yeah. n- down the we, line. Basically, the troops were put in their orders. I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, basically, we were putting stuff in with helicopters, but the helicopters were well intended, which were somewhat limited in their payload. Um, we were dropping things, the, the, the necessities. Now, the necessities, invariably, depending on what the, the military situation was, was it could be that we would take... Um, and we would do, say, two tons in one place, and two tons here, four tons. Here. But it could be anything from bars of soap and beer to literally uh, eight tons of explosive ammunition and all this sort of thing, dropping the loads in for the guns on our forts because they were forts. They were they were done up. I actually was lucky enough on two occasions because a friend of mine was a helicopter driver to go down into the area on the red sector, which is the southern sector. And you go in there, and it was literally the forts were like a, a World War uh, One, a World Trench system right. in in the Somme, as they were. And one of the things that we had problems with on our squadron, we would report our drops, and we'd say, you know, on target or recoverable stores recoverable, because sometimes they'd hit the trees because they say that we were dropping in really difficult conditions, yeah. uh, and the army would say, no, no, stores not recovered. And then one of our chaps or one of our guys in the squad, and then suddenly thought, well, the squad, the, all the bits that we got lost were usually the beer, which suddenly, so they want another drop, you see. <laughs> yeah. And also, we were losing parachutes, because the idea was that parachutes be collected after the job. The helicopters then bring them out, and then we would reuse them, pack them again at Duching, uh, and we'd reuse them. Yeah. Um, then when I went down the forks, I discovered what was happening because you went into the dugouts and there were these festivities with beautiful pink and white yellow parachutes that sort of looked vaguely like the Argus's. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of looked at them and the major said, well, we don't have much comfort. <laughs> you know, so please don't tell. <laughs> yeah, I could just imagine it. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it was. I mean, again, the camaraderie. But, um, I mean, there's all sorts of stories go on about what, happened in Borneo and the drops. I mean, there was one story, which I read, I know is true, that as a joke, that one of the army chaps came in and he was in Kuching in the officer's mess there, which was mainly Air Force, but it was a joint service thing. Um, Plied with a few drinks. Said, well, you know, what do you chaps need out there? You know, and all that sort of thing. And he said, well, you know what would be really useful, really useful? He said, if you could sling us in a Land Rover, he said, because where you have to drop on the, in the village is about half a mile or so from where the fort is. Yep. Now, you drop in one-ton containers, and we've only got, you know, 40 or 50 blokes. So we have to break down the one-ton containers into carable loads. We then have to go through the jungle. And what we do is then we have to walk up, and, of course, all the path, so all the zigzag, getting into the fort, and it's all booby-trapped, and all the sort of nasties which you probably heard about, uh, which we had, and I've got the names of them now, but these pits where they used to have bamboo things well, covered. Punji trips. Yes, yeah, with, with shit on them, basically. Um, so, they, uh, 
they just take well, I mean, we'd drop at 8 o'clock in the morning, something like that, first light, and they'd be all day getting these things up. And he said, you know, if you had a land rover, he said, great, we could build a road and drive it up and we could get a slope and get the winch on the land rover, winch these things up, because it, the land rover would just hold a one-ton container. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> this was duly done. They had a land rover got in there. And I think there's a question mark about where the land rover was obtained from and whether there was actually give, permission given to drop it in anyway, but it all went a little bit. Um, as, as the British military can do when the politicians aren't there, we can actually work things out. And um, this, this was working, and eventually the old major in charge of thought it was chuffed because of course there it was, they drop it and they get this one-time container, put it on the back of the land rover, drive half a mile, which is a few minutes, get it off the thing, get the winch in the front of the Land Rover, up to the fort on this slippery slide, and they go zoop, up top, you know, 10 o'clock, all having a cup of coffee and a drink. Right, right. Um, and they eventually, this major turned around to the headman of the village, so well, tell me, what do you think of this? It's fantastic, isn't it? And the, the old headman sort of died, so I said, mm, that's rubbish. So maybe it's rubbish. And they said, it's rubbish. They said, this Land Rover, you know, we used to take five, six hours to do this, and now we're doing it in an hour. You know, what's rubbish about it? He says, well, it's been here for three weeks and hasn't flown once. <laughs> because, of course, everything they saw came by air. Right. We used to do it. The helicopters used to come in. You know, this Land Rover was totally useless because oh, it didn't fly. That's brilliant. <laughs> I've got to mention one of the worst things that happened to us in, in our coaching detachments and also at Royal Air Force Changi. Was that as we sat on the tarmac in the southern dispersal, as it's called, right upset us, there was this sort of flag flying there with four red stars on it and called 41 squadron <laughs> Royal New Zealand Air Force and they were we used to do detachments in Kuching together so we would have a, an Argosy and a Bristol Frightener okay you know the one like we said at Ardmore yep it's one of the ones that I think was out in, in Borneo yep uh, we had as I've told you I had a great rapport with these guys so we all got on well um, and we used to have a load of fun and you know, they always used to win the navigation contest, but we recognised because they're going so slow. They used to put somebody out and they would ask the way. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, they get low down and yell, and the natives used to tell them where they were. <laughs> but they were, they were a tremendous bunch of guys. Uh, I, again, I can't remember the names now. Some of the names I've told you, which of course, um, uh, I remember one. Pete Tremaine was one guy. I know Pete Tremaine. He lives in the States now, but I know him. Yeah, well, he was one of our guys on... on wow. I bought, the, I bought the cut, my car off him, Pete Tremaine. He's been on my show. I've interviewed him on my show. Is he? Well, yeah. I remember Mike Casey, young first officer. Yeah, well, yeah. Co-pilot. It's, it's a small world, isn't it? He lives over in um, Reno. He lives at Reno, that's oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, but he's actually visited me. He was here last year. He came out. Oh yeah, visited well, Pete Tremaine was, was one of the guys who was, who was a captain on um, Forty One Squadron on the on the fight yeah. as we called. Bloody nice guy. Yeah, he's super bloke. Well, he told me his car. Good bargain. I said. He flew. He flew down to Antarctica, mm. and while he was there, he was on. Uh, he got attached to U.S. Navy Beavers um, unit. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Otter. He was yeah. flying Otters, and while he was there, this is 1960. He got trained up on the helicopter, and I think he must be that. Uh, RNZDFs and possibly New Zealand's first helicopter pilots. Yeah. That's a big claim to fame. Well, I say, well, then, this is what, 1965, we were flying yeah. Yeah, the Friday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a freighter. Yeah, we always yeah. just call it a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we call it that here too. <laughs>
No, God, what a small world. Yeah. Nook at night. They still have um, a, an annual 41 squadron reunion too. Mm-hmm. Um, They're Herx now, aren't they? Well, they were. Didn't they? Sorry? Well, they went over to Herx, didn't they? No, the 41 um, went to Iroquois and they became one of oh, the one Oh, I see. Um, 40 squadrons Herx. Um, yeah. Oh, God. So you had, you, you said you had uh, uh, one Argosy and, and one freighter at. Or uh, permanently at Kuching. Kuching. Now, we but, also used to have attachments to Le Guam as well, but most of those are starting to die. I mean, obviously, when I got there, uh, things that the, the Indonesians weren't very good and they weren't very happy about what was going on and. and there was gradually a, a lack of. I mean, we we had a few actions. I remember bringing bodies back, and uh, you know, I remember the best thing I ever meant it was body bags because we initially first few runs of bodies, uh, we just had them in boxes, and they used to smell in the high heaven. But when we got the old zipper bags, great, not great for them, but yeah, you know, yeah. for as far as the smell was concerned, a lot of them Gurkhas. Right. Okay. Um, so how would they, would they be brought out by helicopter and then loaded? Yeah, and then taken to Kuching and then we bring them back yeah. to Singapore. Um, were, were they taken all the way back to Britain or to wherever, or no, were they no, no. buried in Singapore? Buried in Singapore as far as I'm aware. Because it's, no, it's only recently, that, I mean basically with the Brits, we we always used to bury where we were, exactly, so they yeah. fell, not, not bring them back, repatriate them at all. It's only, Sort of, you know, in yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan, and more, more so in Afghanistan, we've actually pulled them out because, of course, we're concerned about mutilation and what they do to the, to the graves. And graves, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think in Vietnam we might have brought ours back. We didn't have that many. Yeah, well, of course, one of the things I did on the Arctic we went to Vietnam, but just staging, as I told you. And some, every now and again, we used to take six places, used to suddenly jump ship when we got to Saigon. And another time, some dirty scruffy little jokers used to leap on the airplane at Saigon. <laughs> <You know. coughs> they didn't talk much. <laughs> but of course, uh, there was one of the, the Americans turned around and said, you know, why aren't you guys, you know, in this war in Vietnam? To which one of our more sarcastic navigators replied, because well, I don't think the Viet Cong have asked us yet. <laughs> Which didn't go down a well with the Americans. Oh, 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 oh boy. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have gone down well. Well, they used to, I mean, one of the things, again, when we on the Arctic, we used to do a lot of um, work up in Thailand as well. We used to go to Utapel, as was then, um, which is a big B-52 base, but again, we weren't supposed to mention the B-52s there. And then we used to go to Yubon um, oh, and Yudon in the east, because we used to go in a thing called Operation Crown, where we built an airfield. The Royal Engineers had built an airfield just alongside the Mekong, a place called Long Nok Tar, uh, which I never went there, but we used to occasionally have to be, provide one of our officers to be the, the detachment commander. Okay. And Roger Davis did it one time, and he said that they'd be stopped on the way up there in Thailand by communist guerrillas, and if you're British, it was okay. But if you were American, they used to execute them. They um, used to keep quiet about that. Amazing. All the stuff that was going on, mm-hmm. did the British public really have any idea? Because the government wasn't calling it a war going on there. No, well, we were there. I mean, we were going in and out of Saigon. 
diverse other places in, in, in Vietnam between 65 and 68 when I was out in the Far East. And basically, as far as the Americans, they were, they were um, giving uh, training and aid. There was, but we could see from the air flying in. We used to do 9 degree glide slopes in Saigon sometimes because of ground activity. Uh, they would just say there's ground activity, which means there was gunfire coming. Uh, I mean, Tansan New was just, well, it was the busiest airport in the world. And at the, when we first started going in there, it had 90 degree runways. And your clearances and your, your radio procedures and everything was, was, if you weren't up to it, you were in big trouble, deep trouble. Um, because if you missed a clearance, they'd just turn around and say, negative, refile. And that meant you had to wait another hour before you got your clear, another clearance. You had to get off the airplane and go and ask and file another <coughs> flight plan. Wow. Um, but there was a lot of action. Uh, I remember one guy, it was one of ours, what's his name? Andy Adams. We had Sid Adams, one of our captains, and Andy Adams. And Andy Adams was a taciturn sort of Scotsman. And uh, they were going into Saigon. And uh, this American voice called up and said, Okay, you're Rafi 9560, you're clear to land number five in sequence. And uh, no, no, I think, no, you're, you're number four. That's it. And so uh, Andy says, uh, I've got four aircraft in front of us, we'll be number five to land. And the controller came up and says, uh, "Sir, your number, your number four will land." And he said, uh, "And again, this is Andy was a, a you know a Second World War pilot, and he wasn't going to take any stick from any American, you know." <laughs> so he says, "Look here, Sonny." He says, "Don't tell me I've been able to count since I was six years old, and I'm counting, and there's four aircraft in front of me, sir. Would number five to land?" And the chap says, "Negative, sir. You're number four to land." And he said, "Look, laddie, don't." And they looked, and the Hercules in front of them suddenly started disgorging paratroopers about six miles final to go in inside gone, and they were nothing to do with the landing stream. They were doing an operation, sticking <laughs> troops in uh, five miles off the end of the runway. Wow! You know, that's the sort of place it was. But again, and like another thing, um, in Borneo and in Saigon, we were sort of briefed that it's not a topic for discussion. Um, you know, Borneo was declared by a Labour government in the UK as being a purely a policing action. But I think there was something like about 200 and something odd, nearly 300 of our side were killed there, yeah. which is a pretty severe policing action. Yeah. Uh, and it was always kept very quiet. I mean, subsequently, when I went back to do my command course, um, we were detached out to Bahrain. And because I was a bachelor captain, I managed to pull six of these detachments because it was less inconvenient for me to go as a bachelor than the married chaps. Um, that again, we were, you know, there was a major operation against the Chinese infiltrating into the Dofar in southern Yemen, uh, from southern Yemen into Oman, and we were told this is not to be discussed. This sorry, sorry the did you say the Chinese? Chinese-backed troops were coming across Dofar in the southeast of Oman. The South Yemeni rebels were being backed by the Chinese as far as we understood. Wow, I've never even heard that. Ah, and, um, and financed. And um, they, the, our guys, I mean, we had a lot of Brits who were with the Sotomans on secondment and then we had guys who went to BAC who provided the strikers who were of course um, contract pilots, yeah. 
Um, but no, that used to heat up quite a lot. I mean, we used to get the raggy shaggies coming up in, in the monsoon where you, we used to break every rule in the book to get the aircraft in. Um, it was totally illegal, yep. but it was considered it was operationally necessity. So you did it. I mean, you go 500 feet below the break-off height to get in, but you knew what you were doing. Yeah. Um, you'd come in, going into, I mean, in those days, of course, uh, Salala was just a desert strip. And all the markings were were stones at the end of one way painted white. Okay. And the visibility would be absolute crap. The cloud base would be 100 feet or 200 feet. So you used to let down over the sea illegally because the decision height doing an NDB let down was something like about 800 feet, 600 feet. You let down over the sea to 100 feet or so until you got visual with the sea. Come in on the NDB, on the nav with the radar, and come in sideways. So as you were pilot, you literally come in sideways. So you're looking, and then as soon as you saw the coast and the breakers and the trees, you'd have to work out where you were and then get in off that, right. which you would do most of the time. Wow. And then if it really got iffy, you used to get them to come out of the land road and they'd fire bearing pistols off at the end of the runway. So you'd suddenly so see you'd it see them, yeah. and get in. Wow. But again, that was, I said, that was, I mean, I remember being scared stiff because I was still on top of the aircraft and I suddenly heard this noise and this sort of <laughs> and something sort of went over the top of my head I don't know what, because then realised it's one of our shells being fired from behind us towards the enemy positions up on the Jebel and it's one of our shells because it's quite a low track trajectory yeah. going off yeah. Yeah, a bit iffy because all of a sudden there was noise <laughs> and it was, wow but, it, but I mean they, they used to creep right up to the, the boundary and they'd put they'd mortar you Suddenly, get mortar fire coming in. Okay, as you're landing, you well, no, not landing. No, it's we were parked. We were parked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were parked right on the the edge of the the thing because of course most of the times we we're going in there, we had ammunition on board, so they didn't want to leave us sort of lying about in the middle where the, the, the strikers were and the other aircraft and the things. So they put us right on the edge, but right on the edge was nearest the where the the raggy shaggies were coming in up the up the, uh, the what is with their mortars. So you're still on the Argosy? Yes, yeah, still yeah, in the Argosy. Yeah. This is after, after boarding and finished, yeah. or after we left. That was after 68 through the 72. Right. And you said that the Strike Master pilots were contract pilots. Does that mean like mercenary pilots? Or yeah. Who were they working for? Uh, I think they used to work with BAC. But who, who were they contracted to as mercenaries? Uh, to the, the, the local the, government? The, the government, yeah. Right. Okay. But, but BAC. But the, but the BAC provided the aircraft with pilots and it's paid for by the Omani of uh, what's his name um, Quavos who took over from Said because we had this revolution in Oman where Said was deposed by his son yeah. which was spontaneous except we've been practicing for it for about four or five weeks okay. <laughs> um, it just so happened that when he got shot in the bum because when the SAS and Sorry, it wasn't the SAS, do apologise. When, when they went in, Quavus's chaps to replace his father, and went into Saeed's bedroom, and, and Saeed dived under his pillar, and the guy thought he was going for a gun, and so he shot him, and unfortunately the only prudence was to go was his backside. So he was actually moved up from Salala to Bahrain or Sharjah, where there just so happened to be a VC-10 that was waiting for him to take him into exile in the UK. Okay, uh, but it wasn't. It was just a pillow over his head because he was fine. <laughs> he didn't have a gun under there at all. <laughs>
Well, I say this spontaneous revolution by Quabos was we, we practiced it, which of course would be totally denied anywhere. No deal. So, so the the son was the one that was being backed by the Chinese. No, 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 no. He no. was he was he was one on our side. Okay, right. Basically, what they were doing, the Chinese were backing the South Yemeni forces. They were communist. Now, they allegedly, don't know, our intelligence said they were there, but, but there were Chinese on the ground there. Right. I had no idea that no. the communists were trying to even get into the Middle East. I've they were trying to that. take over Oman. That's incredible. In the end, the British, the, the, the Iranians actually helped the Omanis beat them. Right. Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of things going on there. Yeah, God. But again, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's why we don't know about yeah. it these days. Because and it was, you weren't allowed to say anything to the press or anything like that. Incredible. There's probably still stuff going on like that, oh, yeah. even now, but going on all around the place. No one knows about it. And it'll come out in 50 years' time, they'll start talking about it like you are. So. Well, I still know guys. I mean, obviously, when I was in the Argosy, I dealt with things which were working with the SAS and the SBS. Um, operations you did there if you did something and whatever you did was successful you never heard anything about it yeah there was never there was, basically it didn't occur and then when it went off bits of paper like tech sheets and logs that would disappear because it never happened right and that's always coming and even now you can't talk about that or well, no, no, all I did or? is I took off we took off with some blokes yeah and we went to a certain place, and we dropped them, and we came back. But if you went to, if you went to the squadron's operation record book or something, there's no flight in it because you were, you didn't do it. Yeah? No, no destinations, nothing. Yeah. Places I've been to that don't exist, and we never went there. And it's not in my book. Yeah, that's And it's not in any any piece of paper. But that's the the, the way of clandestine operation. It wouldn't be clandestine if anybody knew about it. Yeah. And if it's successful, there's even less reason for them to find out about it. Yeah. Because of what those guys do, what they're trained to do, is not the nicest things in the world. Not at all. So we don't want to admit that we are actually involved. Yeah. But I, I mean, when we dealt with the SAS and the SBS, it was virtually all on Christian name terms. We didn't know who they were. Yeah. And one of the aspects of it was, and particularly with the SBS, is that when we were doing things there, that always the aircraft captain has the the yay or nay for going ahead with the tank. But with them, they said they wanted their guy to make the decisions. I mean, one time we were doing an exercise, and we were in an argosy. This is when I was out in Borneo or out in Singapore. Yep. Doing an exercise about 100 miles off the coast of, of East Malaysia. And basically what we were doing was putting a six-man team of the SBS into the water to pick up a submarine because what they do is you drop them, they get into the sub, the sub takes them up close, they then go ashore, either swimming or in paddling or whatever they do, collect or do whatever they've got to do and then pull out the submarine and we don't hit. Well on this particular occasion what you do when you liaise with the sub, the sub squirts, he comes up and snorks and he'll put out the pinger and you can pick this up in the aircraft. And on the Argosy we had this zero reader and it goes left to right and when you got the pings the thing kicking over and then you do it and you had this method whereby you got and you're coming in fairly low level with your SAS team ready to go and then the sub will actually shine lights up underwater and the sub is underwater okay. 
and um, you will then a team will then go and what they do is they have go out either side they'll have two zodiacs with two guys in the engine now the first guy out is the guy with the engine because you know that because you're this bang 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 because that's him going down because he's hitting the side of the airplane with his nose or the back of his head as he goes because he, they, he just stands in the door with this bloody great engine in front of him yeah. and they push him he doesn't jump they just push it but because he battles inside the airplane <laughs> you know, and then goes and of course he hits the water first but he's got flotation things on the engine and they all assemble in the water and they get the zodiac inflated they climb into the bag and they've got a piece of string between them and then they put a dipper in and they put a thing and the submarine detects it and it comes up but it's, it's tube then it goes in between these two zippers yeah. when they've been collected the guys then kill the Yezodak craft now obviously we were an exercise so they probably didn't kill them but that's the thing um, and then they go inside the submarine and do what they've got to do right. well, on this occasion we're out there in the middle of the night and I was the co-pilot and we're trying to find the submarine and talking and you know and eventually this lieutenant in the SPS sort of comes up and says what's going on guys and we said no sub and he said, well, you're in the right position. He said, of course we're in the right position. You know, don't know. And he just said, are you sure they're there? And he said, yeah. And he said, and he said but there's no, there's no sign of the sub. We're getting no signal from the sub. And, and of course, because of the nature of the training exercise we were on and the security, we couldn't talk to anybody outside the environment. Yeah. And um, he just turned around and said, well, I'm using my, we'll go. And the captain said, well, you're, you're 100 miles off the coast here. Yeah. And he said, we'll go. So we dropped them. Wow. Now we didn't hear that they all drowned or something like that. So we soon they found a submarine somewhere. That's a that's a big decision to make, though. Eh? Not knowing whether you're yeah, going to. I mean, those guys make decisions, and they are ninety-nine times out of hundred life life threatening decisions. Yeah. That's what they do. Uh, the SAS and, and the SBS. That's what they do. If you'd if you'd had that um, authority over them, like you normally would with other passengers. In a training exercise, you'd probably scrub it, but for real for real and in any real um, clandestine operation you're given a degree you're given a measure of the the importance of it okay and obviously if they're telling you that it's bloody important that this thing goes through then you will take the risk yeah. if you're pretty convinced that you've done your bit yeah. obviously any captain will discuss with the leader of the team you know are you happy about the situation um, I mean, I know through things that happened in the Falkland War that there were times when the SAS guys were not happy about what they were supposed to do. Okay. Um, like assassinating the Mirage pilots, or not the, the Entendard pilots, which they were, they were going to do. Yeah. Um, but that's a military thing. You, you, you make a decision, and of course, 99.9% .9 of occasions, having made that decision, once it's initiated, you can't go back. Yeah, exactly. And this is all this thing with firing a gun. You know, once you fire the gun, you can't call the bullet back or the rocket back or the missile back. It doesn't happen. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. And if you're good at it, then whatever is the other end of that target is dead. And that's what it's supposed to be. Also, in situations like that, the moment that you um, basically step into the, the combat zone you have to adapt to everything that happens because no matter what planning you've made 
your position is going to do something that yeah. you haven't thought about. So, well, this is it. And, so is that, and they're used to doing that all the time. Yeah. So well, well, of course, this is what these guys, that's why they're there. Hmm. It's what they've been selected for. Remember, yeah. only 3% of the guys who go through the SAS course selection make it. Yeah, exactly. 3%. Yeah. And a lot of them are scrubbed over before they even get selected to do the course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these guys are special people. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdos, but... <laughs> <laughs> Special. I mean, and obviously you want one outside. Absolutely. And I think it's still acknowledged by most people that British, when I say British, I mean Commonwealth trained guys, an awful lot of the SS are Fijians and Tongans, are bloody good. They're the tops. And and the American forces and the Russians will all admit this, that they are good. And of course, even in Afghanistan, you know, and when we've had boos, you know, the, the guys, many times they're put in there by idiots who cocked up a planning rather than what they've done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I'm always asked about this thing, you know, Bravo 2-0. And of course, there's only one thing happened there, that the guy there didn't do the one thing he should have done. And when that kid came to the cave, he should have killed him. And they didn't. And that's why whatever he says, Brian, or whatever, he was out because he, he compromised the mission by not killing that kid. Right. I mean, only if it had given them half an hour start, there would have been a way out of it. Yeah. But these guys make, that's, the, that's what they're there for. Yeah, exactly. Um, I meant to ask you earlier, when we were talking about the Argosy, um, tell me about the, the crew. You've got a captain and a co-pilot. You've got a navigator. Uh, 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 yeah, and then a flight engineer. Engineer. And then, and then you've, you've got, got a load master. Load master. Is that only just one down the back? Yeah, just one. But depending on, say, if, if you've got, you see, we can just carry 56 passengers. Uh, and, you know, if, we, um, if you've got para on board, obviously you've got the load master and you've got, so you need a load master either side. Because unlike the Hercules, with the Argus, you can drop simultaneous stick. Yeah. Whereas the Herc, you've got to work out, they've got to go alternate, otherwise they meet underneath the aircraft and bang their heads together, which is not a good idea if you're para. Well, of course, most of the pay did have notes that they <laughs> together. Um, that's not true, they're good blokes, but, um, but um, yeah, that's a sort of basic crew. I mean, when we did supply drop in Borneo, we used to have a loadmaster, maybe a second loadmaster, um, because we used to have the Royal Corps transport uh, dispatchers on board, and they used to do all the bits under the supervision, and of course the loadmasters were all the sergeants. And so the head of the dispatch team would all invariably be a corporal. But it didn't matter who it was. As they were on board there, they came under the auspices of the, the crew. Right. Or the command of the crew. Okay. But, um, yeah. And also, um, in, uh, was it Kuching where you were? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we, went, we did detachments. Detached to, yeah. Um, what was the living conditions like there for you guys? Uh, well, we were in this deluxe basher, um, and it was, it was a basher, and uh, I think it was 66 squadron found out how good it was because we used to have a wooden floor, and 66 squadron decided to do some, and they jumped up and down, up and down the spot, and they went through the floor of the officer's mess, and they all sat in a circle drinking beer, you know, with this hole that they'd made. Um, it was. We lived in these bashers. There was the toilets were there, but they were concreted, but they were fairly basic. Yeah. They weren't long drafts, but they, they sort of don't. 
Yeah, I don't remember too much about toilets, you know, just, <laughs> but they weren't exactly. It wasn't, wasn't the five star hotel, that's for sure. What about the food situation there? Uh, adequate. But again, it was military. You know, you just, yeah. if you've got food, you've got food. Yeah. Is it things like stews and rice? And yeah, that? whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, you had K rations in those days. We didn't have the, 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 the super stuff they have now. Yeah. But we had the K rations, and um, well, you just, I mean, it was pretty plain food. We didn't have these people talking about nourishment and you know what was good for you. I think you just ate food, and if they said that's what was for dinner, you either ate it or you didn't eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we used to have you know nasty goring with local cookeries coming and do something. Okay, yeah. all right, okay. Um, and so you, you've gone from um, Borneo back to Britain, done your command course, yeah. then you were in the Middle East. Well, no, I was did, we'd get yeah, we did detachment, detachment, yeah. yeah. So, so how long would the detachment be when you were in It's four months. And then you go back to Britain again? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But um, I managed to collect two. I mean, I did, I did four years at Benson. So like four, four years at RF Benson yeah. on 114 Squad. And I spent nearly two and a half years on detachment in, in Bahrain. Okay. Because I was a bachelor. Yeah. But they didn't say that. But it was because it was less inconvenient. It was. I was told that it's less inconvenient for you to go than another person. Right. Gotcha. Married. Gotcha. So Bahrain then must have been fairly different from oh, yeah. when you well, lived there later. Oh yeah, yeah. a lot different. And we had the causeway, which was a single track road with passing places. And then I've got my year they decided to do it. I mean, there were no hotels there. Okay. We had the Golf Hotel, which is the old-fashioned golf, not the Golf Hotel. Well, it's the third one's been built now. Right. But. Uh, I remember when they changed, the, we used to drive on the left-hand side of the road in Bahrain, and they decided we'd drive on the right-hand side of the road. And they said that midnight, and they said, so there's going to be a change of the side of the road you're driving on. And I remember going across the causeway the next day, and it was great, because they're embedded right in the middle of the causeway with two taxis, right head to head. Oh, okay. They just hit. <laughs> Couldn't have to be the chaps. So... The situation there then, was there an American base there then? Like there is now? Mm, no. Was it more of a British oh, territory? Oh, very, very yeah. Well, it's a protector at the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I went there in 1968, and it was, it was a British protector. I mean, we used to get Sheikh Issa, who was the, the, the Emir, coming to the officers' mess and called all the officers sir, because he knew jolly well that, you know, the reason he was in power is because we the kept him there. Yeah. And, and all along the coast. I mean. When I went to Dubai, Dubai and, and Abu Dhabi and, and Sharjah, little baristas, little, little, little tiny little place, uh, there was nothing there. I mean, the, basically, we had Sharjah, we had a 6,300 foot runway. At Dubai, we had a 6,300 foot runway. At Abu Dhabi had an all military built. Yeah. <coughs> and all in the same direction. Okay. All the same length, all the same standard. But they were military. Uh, and very much, I mean, we had the, the, a lot of the work we did in the detachment was uh, we supplied down to Sharjah, Mazira, which is an island. Again, when I first went to Mazira, we just had a, 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 I mean, we had a concrete runway a little bit, but mainly it was a sand runway with, okay. with touchdown bits in the end with, with metal um, and tarmac touchdown points. Um, and Missouri was like the face of the moon. In fact, the moon was probably more hospitable. <laughs> Missouri was an awful place. Um, 
but you wouldn't do we just do night stops here as we go because we go uh, Bahrain Sharjah Mazira night stop there Mazira Salala Mazira night stop and then do Mazira Sharjah back to Bahrain and also we used to do Bahrain Kuwaits we used to go across Tehran things like this um, but a lot of the work we did in the desert would be in support of the Trusha Lohman Scouts which was a mainly Askari, which is East African troops um, and certain Arab troops, uh, British officer. Okay. And then uh, that was Trusha Lohman Scouts, but <clears throat> we used to have a lot of chop these, all the, you know, the old local chiefs and tribes used to get a bit argumentative and every now and again they'd toss and go, we, Trusha Lohman Scouts, toss what it's called, the toss would be sent to go in and well, what we would do is we'd go in and we'd have two land rovers in the back of the aircraft, we'd land in somewhere with these two Land Rovers and with big home machine guns on the back and we'd tunnel them out the back of the airplane and they'd disappear off and um, do all the heads to and then come back. Okay. So the, they're really there just to keep the peace in, there, in the region between yeah. the tribes and stuff. Exactly what the RAF was doing in the 1920s and yeah, 20s, the 30s. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Same sort of thing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, when we, did, we had hunter squadrons, at, we had two hunter squadrons at Bahrain and they used to attach down to Sharjah and down to Mazira. Okay. And you get a lot of stuff coming through Bahrain there on the way from one hemisphere to another? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the battalions used to come through. The BC-10s started coming through. Yep. Um, but I said, you know, when we were in the Argosy, and then when I went on to the battalions, um, we used to use the staging points at Cyprus. You would go through Akateri, and you'd hold there for two or three days, because then you'd had a unit, if ever anything happened in the Far East. Remember at that time we were members of Cento with the Turks, um, you know, and all that sort of thing. Well, we had a, so you could then start a, a shift system going through and heavily, uh, you know, instead of having one or two battalions going through a day, you could have, have 20 going through and you'd have crews there all standing by to go on. Um, I mean, that was one of our major staging places, same as, as GAN we used to come through, because our, our basically our, our Far East route would be on the Britannias when I got onto them, was be UK, Cyprus, Cyprus, Bahrain, Bahrain, GAN, GAN, Singapore, Singapore, Hong Kong. And we used to do freighters on the, on the, um, on the Britannia, where we used to go out and back in eight days or something like that. But you keep the same aircraft, not slip it. Okay. So how long were you doing that for? Was it? Well, I was on the Argosy until 1972, and then yep. I then I went to the Britannia in January of 72. Um, as the first officer, and I went on 511 Squadron because of my association with 511 Squadron beforehand. I asked specifically to go back there. I did a year as a first officer with those or co-pilot, and then I got accelerated command on the Britannia. Okay. Um, and. I did that until 1975 when I was placed on the Phantom Simulators, which I thought, ah, oh, because they'd spoken to me about going on to VC 10s, and I've told you yeah. about being one of the Royal Pilots eventually. And that never came about, and I got a bit miffed about that. And then on this Phantom, I said, well, am I going to be able to fly Phantoms? And they said, no. And although I did, which is strictly between you and me in the date case, because it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's when I decided to come out of the Air Force. 
because I had an interview and they sort of said, well, you know, and I said, well, no, you, you led me to believe this, that and so on. And, and now putting me on the Phantom Simulator just completely sidetracked me. So am I going to get promoted? Am I going to make squadron leader? Am I going to do it? Oh, we can't tell you. And I said, well, you know, if I'm now on the ground, I can't get outside in silly seat because I haven't been flying and I haven't got continuity. So I have to make a decision and you have to help me. And the bloke said, well, oh, you know. So I decided to take him and that's why I came out. He was on my commission, which they refused to accept. And then I said, no, I'll, I'll make a big fuss unless you do. And they let me out. Okay. And that was the end of my Air Force career. Well, can you tell us um, what the, fa the Phantom side of it? You were training RAF Phantom. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, but we also, we're in the simulator, but we're doing training instructing. But basically, all the Phantom guys, we had 43 squadron and triple one squadron, RAF based at uh, RAF Lucas. We also, the Navy, 892 squadron, Phantoms, used to, when they disembarked the carrier, and the only carrier we had at the time was the Ark Royal, yeah. they would use, they would have their home at RAF Lucas. So we had this joint unit, we had naval staff at there, the Navy had their own flight line, their own technicians, their own ground crew and all that sort of thing. We had a naval liaison officer there, between liaisons, but basically there was a mini naval establishment on the RAF station. Yeah. Um, the, the commander in charge of it was obviously subservient to the base commander who was a group captain of Royal Air Force, but anything appertaining to Navy matters was his baby and the Air Force didn't interfere. Right. But they were a good bunch of guys. But of course, at the time, 892 squad, nearly half the squad, and if not more than half the squad, were actually RAF blokes. Right. Because that's why 892 squad had the Omega. Because they said, this is the last thing it's going to be, fixed wing carriers, because we're going to go on to the, um, the Harrier. And so none of the Navy guys wanted to go onto a dead airplane, as far as they're concerned, because career-wise. Yeah. In fact, one of the pilots we had there was a guy called Sharky Ward, who subsequently made his mark in the, uh, in the Falklands War. Yes, yes. Mad as a hatter. That's a mad bastard. <laughs> I mean, he was either going to get himself a bloody VC or kill himself, or he didn't get a VC, but he got a DSO or something. Right. But, uh, yeah, mad as a hatter. <laughs> Great guy, though. Super sense of fun, you know. So, yeah. Running a simulator like that, you'd have to learn all about the aircraft itself. Yeah, you actually, you, did, you were not, you said, this is a ridiculous thing, I was like, no, you weren't allowed to fly the airplane. I approached the Air Force about flight, and they said no. It's just stupid. You, you need to know the aircraft to be able to teach well, it. Well, you could make, you see, the big thing is, if you had a pilot come into the simulator and he didn't come up to the crack, then you could have him chopped in the simulator. Yeah. And I used to say, this is ridiculous, I, you know, I'm not, not flying the aircraft. Oh, it's a simulator, it's exactly the same, it's not. Because I disagree, yeah. because of the mentality of the simulator is totally different to the mentality of yeah. flying an airplane. Especially in those days, simulators weren't that great, were they? No, they weren't, no. Kind of rubbish. <laughs> yeah. But even now, you see, I still, you know, when I went on to Suey Street and I did simulator training there, CBT, you know, computer-based training and all sort of thing, it's not the same. You don't have the depth. When I did the, the Britannian course and the Argosy course, you did it in depth. I mean, the Argosy ground school was three months. Yeah. You know, and you were doing, you did a, a solid month, six weeks in ground school. You know, it's five days a week from eight until six in the evening. Yeah. Um, and then you did a month side to fly, but also still 
in the ground school and everything else. With the Britannia, we did three, I think nearly six, yeah, it was about four months in the ground school. And the Britannia was an incredibly complicated airplane, but you expected to know about it. When I went into Civvy Street and started, you, I mean, I did the DC, I came off Britannia's onto the DC t- in Civvy Street. <coughs> I think it was a month, five weeks. Okay. And the same with the uh, TriStar, five weeks. And, and, but you just learn the minimums. Wow. You, you, you know the systems as you can do it in the, in the, the flight deck. Yeah. But in the military, you knew the systems. I mean, I spent many a time stood there with the Calvins up with the ground crew. I mean, on 215s, we had a wonderful system whereby you, as a flying officer, were allocated to one of the NCO sergeant, flight sergeant, master engineers, and he was your instructor. You would learn all about the servicing of the aircraft. Right. Which, of course, meant that he would do all nasty things to you. Like, he'd say, um, right, go and check the oils and the Argus in. And of course, you've got a diet engine. You know what the Argus is like. Yeah. Um, and, of course, what you do is you sit on the engine and you slide out there. Because down on the right-hand side, there's a cap open, there's a little dipstick. Yep. And you get about four foot along the engine, and all of a sudden you think, hang on, Jesus, come on. <laughs> because the aircraft's been sat in the sun and all of a sudden your backside starts to burn, burn yeah. and one of the things that yeah, now you think well the engineer sort of says well that's why I wait for ladder concern you know <laughs> but we had to do first line base servicing and learn that all and go. we were expected once a month the squadron would, would send you along to the hangar and you'd spend a day in the hangar okay. going through all the technical sides of the airplanes and all that sort of thing and, and it would not actually helping out but being looking at it and seeing what was to be done and because in the field you might be required to do that absolutely it's a really good idea because you, you know your aircraft so yeah. much better yeah well anything with the military is, is like that yeah whereas in seriously it's basically get you through fly the airplane yeah and that's it yeah I mean okay there's all the bits and pieces but certainly in civil aviation I mean I knew you do load sheets I knew everybody's job on my airplane all the way up and I did the 747 I knew their job I could do their jobs I wouldn't do it at the same speed but I could do it yeah and the same was in the military but um, you know all you'd done in civil street is just the basic you're expected to have the skills and knowledge you require beforehand yeah I mean this is where it used to be great for civil aviation because they used to take on blokes ex-military knowing that the standard military training but now they there's not that much military so they they don't get it I mean there will always be this argument about military pilots and straight through civil pilots my argument being that we get, used to get chopped a civil pilot who doesn't make it okay daddy can you let me have another 10,000 exactly yeah I mean I, I've talked with um, older pilots mm. experienced commercial pilots who went through the air force system and then went to commercial well, that's who used to be the standard thing exactly and they look at pilots that they're flying with now um, who have gone to a flying school and they're flying twin stars or you know Cessnas mm. or things like that and then suddenly they're in the left hand uh, the right hand seat of a 737 or mm. an Airbus mm. um, they've never flown upside down mm. they don't get taught that yeah but of course they're formation flying things like I mean we were yeah. flying the Argus in the Britannia in formation yeah um, I think the nearest they've had to that was they had all these Airbuses flying in formation and then they took about 10 weeks to rehearse that yeah and they were probably all ex-military pilots yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> they probably selected the ones that knew yeah. what they were doing. Yeah, but I mean that was part and parcel of, of being military. That, that you know formation fight. I mean, it's like aerobatics. 
Remember, it's not just because it looks pretty and it thrills the crowd. It's part of learning how to fly the airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do aerobatics, it's called recovery from unusual positions because be you'd be on flight instruments, close your eyes, and then in such a third round, so right now, and you open your eyes and think, yeah. and have to work it out where you were and what you were doing. The worst one was when they put you upside down in a barrel roll because, of course, there's a positive one, do you turn? And they give it to you there. And you look at the instrumentation and everything's, oh, we're flying to that level until all of a sudden you go bop when the 1G comes off and suddenly hanging right. on the straps <laughs> yeah. and you realise you're upside down. <laughs> but if you look at the instrumentation, when they come out, everything's where it should be. We're flying to that level. So you do nothing. <laughs> and then of course then he goes, and you hang on the straps. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the, the premise behind military training was that all situations you can cope with, every single situation you can cope with. I mean, even to the extent, I mean, one of the things that I advocated, you know, why shouldn't you give me a gun? So if some bastard comes bursting through my flight deck, I'll put a bullet through his head. Mind you, the stewards get a bit peed off without <laughs> just bringing the tea, but <laughs> at least yeah. they remember where they put one sugar in or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you're right. And But from the other point of view is the average airline pilot is never going to need to fall back on that. Because most of them don't have any problem. Well, but when it does happen, look at um, Sully Sullivan. Yeah. He had that background training that yeah. saved how yeah. many hundred people? Uh, military. Yeah, exactly. But, but um, I mean, the big thing is when, I mean, we used to sit over the middle of the Pacific and we'd suddenly see the FMS start blinking on the 747 and that's Singapore operations or engineering. Checking up and downloading off through the bio satellite all the pram. You'd land in somewhere and the bloke can't there and say, Oh, yeah. And he said, Well, I'm just going to put the new book. Why? Well, because we, we've got signs at the side, so we're going to put this in now. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. It's working all right. <laughs> that was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. But that's, that's the way it works now yeah. because the big thing is ground time on a civil aircraft is wasted time. The yeah. baby's got to keep up there. Yeah. But that's what's making you your money. And, and even um, industry experts are now saying it's not going to be that long before they won't even have pilots up front. Yeah. It's just going to be all automatic. Yeah. Well, it's pretty automatic now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big thing is, I used to turn around when I was training on the, on the 767. And the guys go, and I said, well, the aircraft are actually designed to be flying on autopilot back all the time. And I said, and if you're sat down the back, you can tell straight away when it's being hand flown. Because no matter how smooth the pilot you think you are, your inputs, whereas when the things are on autopilot, the inputs are all very smooth and everything right. else. Right. But since things start to go like, oh, taking out the hand flying it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, because you when you're gripping sort of 4,000 PSR, which is what you're doing when you take over it, you know, you've only got to take the slightest little brief, deep breath and it twitches. Yes. And the whole airplane feels it. Yeah. And I can remember pulling back and waiting 10 minutes before anything happened. <laughs> and you fly. That's actually probably a good feeling if you're sitting down in the back and you feel that someone's flying it because you know they're awake. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, there's been cases now with all the manic parts where they've not been awake. Exactly. Yeah. What was it when they, uh, they were meant to land at Heathrow and they kept on going because they're both asleep? Yeah, well, they won. I mean, landed at Frankfurt instead of Brussels or something. Or, or landed at Brussels, I don't know, the American thing. Crazy. So, uh, after you left the Air Force, did, uh, what was the first airline you went to? Was it Laker? No, I got a job um, flying cargo outfits for an outfit called Air Faisal, who'd bought two or three ex-Air Force uh, Battalion 252s. Yep. 
And basically what I did, I was asked, I was phoned up, and of course I'd done my type rating on the Britannia. Yep. Um, I did my CPL and all that and ATPL. Um, and somebody phoned me up and said, I understand you've got type rating on a bit of Britannia. And I said, yep. And they said, would you like a job? You know, and I said, what's it doing? And they said, well, we, in two days' time, you go out to Bombay and you spend up to 100 hours in Bombay flying for 100 hours and then when you've done your 100 hours you come back and I said well, what's the thing and they said well you'd have 2,000 quid in your pocket plus allowances wow 1975 this is 1975 six, yeah. Yeah. for that yeah so anyway I did that and then after two sessions of that they said would you like to be a captain now when I left the Air Force I was on five and a half thousand pound a year and six months after I left the Air Force I was on 23,000 pound a year wow and I did that Air files went bust because the guy got done for drug running. And I joined up, we called Redco Air Cargo. And I was with those. And then I got a phone call from mate saying Lake will be advertising for back 111 pilots. Send in your application. I'll send it to me and I'll make sure it goes to the top of the park. And of course, like all things, this guy was ex military. Yeah. Um, and I went for an interview with Alan Hillary, who was the chief pilot, and he was talking about the thing, and he was saying, you know, da da da, but your background, you were captain on Britannia, yeah, you know, you're captain on Arby, yeah, you know, all this sort of thing. And then he said, um, well, it sounds silly, so like, you know, I obviously can't say yay or no, but this way, can you go to America in two weeks' time? Because unofficially, I'll tell you, you've got a job. And I said, why America? He said, what do you mean by America? I said, well, I, I thought you did your back 111 training in, in Bournemouth Hearn. He said, no, this is for the DC-10. Oh. You're going on to DC, we're recruiting for you for DC-10s. So the next thing I know, I'm out in Texas, doing oh, a DC-10 course, which is great. And of course, that was in 19, back in 78, beginning of 79. Yep. And that was going great. And, um, I then, I've been there about six, eight months, something like that, more than that, and I suddenly jumped 90 places on the seniority list because Freddie said, well, this guy's with his military background, and a lot of the silly pilots said, well, that's not fair, and he said, Freddie says, hey, I'll pick my bloody pilots, not the trade union, and they were not a trade union, we didn't have a trade union, yeah. and he said, I'll pick my pilots, and then I was told I'd be lined up for a command course in March of 82, unfortunately on the 5th of February, Laker Airways went belly up. And then I was in the wilderness, couldn't get a job for two years. Everywhere I went to look for a job, they kept saying, you're too experienced. And I said, I've got a wife and two kids. And they said, too experienced, because as soon as the market opens up again, you'll be off. Yeah. Um, and then I got a phone call from, again, a mate of mine, an ex-military. And a job going in, uh, what's it? Um, I've got the name of the damn thing. At East Midlands. Flying the uh, Victor, um, the Vickers Viscount. Oh, Viscount, yeah, yeah. Not Viscount, uh, Vanguard, cargo, red coat, not red coat, yeah, cargo. It was, um, anyway, cargo outfit there. Yeah. So I did that for about eight, nine months, and I got another call from another ex-military bloke, said, Golf will be recruiting, shove your thing in, send it me, I'll put it on top of the pile, we have an interview with that, for the, the uh, TriStar. Um, 
the bloke said, you know, well, uh, yeah, you've got a job. And I said, just out of biocuriosity, you know what? I said, come on. So he said, not in a million years. He said, this is now airline and policy now is that all the captains, future captains, will be Arabs. So 18 months later, I was captain on Tristar because they suddenly discovered that mm, some of the Arabs weren't that good. Right. Um, and then that's, uh, 18 months after that, I was captain, as I say, stayed there, then went up, did a conversion, and then they, the airline got rid of the Tristars. 767s came in, went in there, was with them about a year, then the training captain. And then got fed up being in the Middle East and fed up with Arabs and in fact didn't like it at all. Yeah. My divorce had come through and everything on separation. Um, and then I got a whisper from Singapore Airlines that if I cared to put it in a thing, they'd look favour on me. So I duly did. Went did a flight check with them and everything else, got accepted on the seven forty seven, the straight in command as a senior captain. Yeah. And um and they said, ah, oh, and I resigned in November because they said it starts in January. And they said, oh, no, we saw it meant August. So I said, well, what happens now then? And they said, well, go back to Gulf Air. And I said, I've told them to stuff their job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I then spent uh, six months flying in Italy on 767s with uh, uh, Air Europa. Oh, yes, yep, yep. And just mainly Caribbean stuff. And then the odd um, Seychelles, uh, didn't... Um, the Maldives, uh, Singapore, run, I think I did, Philippines. Right, so that's when you and Mike went out to the... Yeah, that's it, yeah, okay. I, was, I was there, I phoned them up to come out from Italy and then went across to San Domingo. Right. And stayed for a week. Cool. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, basically, they, they weren't doing that much. I mean, you go to certain places and there wasn't another flight for a week. You know, you only did one week there. Okay. So you'd sit on the island for a week. I mean, we used to go, I mean, I went, went to practically every place in, I mean, Cuba. In fact, the most dangerous part of my life was we used to get picked up by a Yak-40. We were flown around Cuba because you go to one airport and they want you up at Havana and you were, say, down in um, Santiago de Compostela, you know, right the other end. So they pick you up in a, this, I mean, Yak-40, these Cuban pilots. Jeez. <laughs> just scared. I mean, one day we're coming out, then they're flying an ILS and I'm saying, you're too low and you're right at centre line, and he's going, get, get. So tr- that way and up a bit, you know. Yeah. I'm sat and going, that way and up, look, you know, care, care, care. Then he suddenly realised what I was pointing out to him. And the Yak 140 uh, was not the nicest piece of kit. Three engine, baby, three engine thing. Oh, wow. And it was a. Uh, used to rattle and bounce and horrible thing it was. <laughs> at any moment the scene's going to fall out of the bloody sky. Yeah, sounds like it. But the Cubans are wonderful people actually, they're super fun loving, they had nothing there, they didn't have anything. Yeah. But they just, when you suddenly see, well there'd be a queue for me, and you say, what's a queue for? I said, don't know, well why a queue? Well somebody says there might be something, what might it be? Don't know. <laughs> and they, they, two or three hundred people just queuing along the side of the road. Because wow. there might be something going, yeah. there might be ice cream. And then the, some of the ice cream turned up. The first 50 got ice creams, then nobody else would. And then the food was practically nothing. But there's some good bars. And you, if you like rum and you like seafood, you get lobsters, good law there. Okay. So as an airline pilot that's flying in and out of that sort of place, and it's a pretty good place to be uh, spending your time in yeah. between. Yeah. But I mean, in the end, again, 
in the end, it got to a stage where everything, there's minimum time. I mean, airline business, I mean, all the guys, I'm sure, will tell you. You know, gone are the day. I mean, when I joined Golf Air, well, when we went and joined Laker, we used to go over, we only had one flight a week to Los Angeles. So you go over to Los Angeles, you sit in Los Angeles for six days. Yeah. Well, oh, that can't be bad. Go to New York. We had two flights a week to New York, so you'd sit in New York for either three days or four days. Great fun. Yeah. When we went to Tampa, we used to only one a week into Tampa, so you'd sit in Tampa for a week, right. all paid for it in allowances. Yeah. Uh, and then we'd go fair. We used to do, remember we had one trip, we used to go uh, Bahrain, Doha, Bahrain, Doha, Muscat, uh, Bangkok. Four days in Bangkok. We go Bangkok to Hong Kong, which is a two-hour flight. Four days in Hong Kong. Wow. Hong Kong to Bangkok, two-hour flight again. Another four days in Bangkok, and then you fly back to Bahrain. So great. Didn't do anything. And then subsequently, what happened to my marriage? I could have been doing things I didn't take a lot of them, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I was married, two yeah. kids. But so it actually, when you think about that, it is a long time to be away from home for right. for a person. So yeah, but all the benefits. So I mean, mm. first class travel, yeah. and all this sort of yeah. thing. We got help. This is where we put Mike through bloody private education, Phil through private education, all yeah. these things. Yeah. You know. So, and also the fact that you are spending about you know probably half a month in home. So you're only working just over two weeks. I think, I think that we contact was 16 days a month. It was right. flying, okay. and also you would fly in hours. But there again, you see, you could, you could do 100 hours in that time, and that's the maximum you could do. Yeah. I mean, in in my contract with Singapore Airlines, it was 80 hours a month. Anything in excess of 80 hours a month, I got a triple bonus. So they didn't want me to fly 100 no, hours a month. You know, 20 hours of that I was getting mega bucks. And we used to have and the other thing they introduced, which they don't talk about, but I don't know if it's still there. We used to get fuel bonuses. If you save fuel, you you get additional money. Okay. That's why whenever they say go around or do this, I say no, because <laughs> <laughs> you cost the airline money. You know, the big argument there, London Air Traffic Controller. Now I told you about it. Oh, coming in there and. Coming in Singapore, and of course, six o'clock is the earliest landing time, so you're all aiming to get you're flying 12 hours, 14 hours up in Singapore, so you're aiming to get there, so you land at one minute past or one second past six o'clock. And I was coming down into Heathrow, and as far as I knew, I was in front, and uh, the guy said, You're number one, on me uh, 09, left. And then all of a sudden, the controller came and said, uh, Singapore Airlines, would you please reduce your speed? Da, 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 da. Uh, you're now number two. So it's quite a clear day. And I said, what am I number two to? And they said, British Airways 747. So I said, is this British Airways 747 down on my left-hand side, about 5,000 feet below me and about half a mile behind me? And they said, yes. And I said, well, have they changed the regulations? I said, because as far as I understand the regulations, the aircraft in front, irrespective of height, has priority to landing. So if they change the regulations, that's fine. But if they hasn't, you want this recording, I want this thing recorded because you just broke their total regulations. And I said, I will take it further. Speedbell, would you slow down? Singapore, can you speed up a bit? You're now number one. <laughs> well, you're talking money. Yeah. That might cost your company three, four thousand pounds more. Yeah. Well, every trip we do it. We had 60 blooming 747 400s. You know, every trip we did it. 
and, we'd, and they were airborne three times a day. Yeah. And that's money. Wow, it's like in, on the 767, I did a trip with a guy who was captain. He'd been captain in the UK, came to us as, on Gulf Air as a, as a first officer, sort of screaming, and he was doing a command course. And when he first training trip, he came with me, and I said, well, you've been captain before. You do all your bits, you know what to do. I'll just sit, because you're, obviously as your training captain, you sit in the right and see. You do the co-pilot's job or first officer's job, but you watch what's going on. And this bloke said, and say the fuel figure come out, computerized fuel burn was 43, 43, 300, 43 tons, 43.3 tons. And he said, well, well, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll take 44 tons. And I said, why? He said, well, it's a little bit overtopped. And I said, what, you got, why, why do you want an extra 700 kilos? <coughs> oh, well, we, you know, while the winds might not be a forecast, there's a, a contingency built in for wind. <coughs> well, it might be a contingency built in for that. And he said, well, we might have to, to do a go-around. And I said, how much fuel do you use in a go-around? Which is also built in. Or we might have to do an extra hold. I said, how much fuel do you use in a holding pad? And he said, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, I'll tell you. You use roughly a thousand pounds per orbit. I said, so you're going to go around seven-eighths of an orbit, or seven-tenths of an orbit, yeah. with this extra 700. And he said, oh, no. well, you're being picky. I said, I'm not being picky. And he said, well, anyway, it'd be easier for the refuelers. I said, you've been captain on the 767. The 767's got an automatic fueling system. You dial a figure on, you plug it in, and you leave it. And it will allocate the fuel to the right tanks. That's what the system does on the 767, as it does on the 747. And he said, well, well I said, I'll tell you what, done a survey. If every captain on every Gulf Air flight, 767s, puts on 100 kilos of fuel too much per flight, we spend over $10 million more. Jeez. So you're a little bit over the top. I said, so now, if everybody did what you do, we're talking 75 million extra just for a little bit that isn't actually no good to you because you can't do a go around on it you can't do an orbit on it you can't do a circuit on it you can't do anything with it you're just carrying it around and any extra weight you carry in a big jet you don't need it's wasted because your performance isn't as good and one of the things you're doing on the jet is looking to get the height and as soon as you get to a magic figure you say right requesting climb another 4,000 feet please because yeah. the higher you get it the more fuel efficient it is yeah. Yeah. well you delayed it by about 14 or 15 minutes. Well, 14 or 15 minutes means all the difference between you getting the height and somebody else getting the height. And if they get the height behind you, you're stuck down underneath them. Yep. And you're burning fuel. And you're paid not to burn fuel. Yeah. Wow. Amazing stuff. I, I'd never even sort of considered mm. that, but... I mean, those figures are... But, you know, well, I'm going back 19... 92, 3, something, you know. But those are 10 million. But if every captain put on one, one which is nothing, you know, we're putting less than, what, you're talking about 0.05% or something stupid like yeah. this, yeah. one flight. But it's still a lot of money. It is. Wow. And of course, you you ended your career on the 747 mm -hmm. as a captain. Yeah. Um, how long did you do on the 747? Nine years. Nine years, yeah. And by that stage, you pretty much had enough of it, hadn't you? Yeah, well, I was 60, and I needed 60 to retire anyway. Yeah. I mean, you could have stayed on, I could have stayed on flying, but as a first officer, I mean, money, yeah, I should have done that for money, but because you, you never know, you always need money. Yeah. 
but I got fed up with it. I've been doing it for 40 odd years. When you look back over your career, um, do you have a favourite aircraft that you flew? Favourite type? Yeah, I suppose the Britannia, because the Britannia was a very difficult airplane to fly. Uh, it was technically a nightmare. Um, sometime I'll show you a picture of the simplified electrical diagram. It's this big, like this big, and it's it's called the cartwheel, and it is and it's simplified. They say like about twenty different electrical systems on the Britannia, and I cut top of the ground score, which is unusual for me because I'm not that much of a brain, but. I could fly it and I enjoyed it and I say it was a technical nightmare I mean, as a first officer you've got the fuel panel down here you've also got the pressurisation PRV pressure release valve on your side which you've got crank so when you're flying from the right hand seat you make a one arm paper hanger look like a simple job <laughs> and I could do it yeah. and because I could do it I mean I only did a year in that right hand seat because I did it quite well they actually promoted me and I got excited to command but I always loved the battalion and it's a lovely looking airplane, despite the called the whispering giant, we used to call it the whimpering giant, but inside it's as noisy as hell. Is that right? Yeah. What are the engines on that? Uh, Proteus. Okay. Uh, which is a back to front engine. Oh, right. Yeah. If you work out the actual intake to the Proteus engine, the props at the back of the engine, because the, the intake comes there, the airflow goes there, it goes round what they call the bend, and the intake is a jet engine back to front with a propeller. Out where you would have a turbine. Oh, right. That's the, that's the Proteus. Okay. And unfortunately, the military ones didn't have what they call B skin jets because it turns around this bend. It's an ideal condition for icing. Well, the civil ones had this double skin which they used to put hot air through. Yep. The military didn't have that. So ours used to freeze up and okay. just get a wonderful situation called bumping where the engine used to stop. And inside the engine, you have silicone uh, hot plugs, glow plugs. And they're sort of glowing. And when the engine cuts out, it detects this, and then it goes kick and kicks into life again. And when you fly along, suddenly you go boop, and you look, and you suddenly see one engine go whoop, the promise out, and then it'll start up again. Wow. And when you have that, and it's only happened to me once in the middle of the Atlantic, all four stopped at the same time. Which, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then it all came back again. Now, we're talking about one or two seconds it's a boom 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 yeah. and not every instrument on the on the on the forehand is sort of oh, no. wound up wow <laughs> yeah so, you, know, you ask a Britannia pilot about bumping you know, and then min black hunt on the blooming props and because you had the props and all this sort of thing and you had 16 foot paddles on that thing and when you land it when you land it in the Kathmandu you touch down the first six in the initial Kathmandu before they extend it like it is now Put your wheels in the first six inches, and you put those sixteen-foot paddles in the reverse, and it's like walking into a brick wall, and it stops. It's a lovely airplane, good performance. Um, had things been different, it would have been a success, you know. But it, they only built fifty-six of them, I think. Was that right? And they bought a slow one, but by then the jets were starting to come in. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was. It was a lovely, beautiful-looking airplane, and it was a nice airplane. It was as difficult as hell to fly. One of the first automatic airplanes flew by wire. Which okay. we, well, you we see the, the, the thrust levers, or the throttles, as we call it in those days, and jets, they didn't have throttles, they had thrust levers, because that's the Americans. Yeah. Um, they weren't actually connected to the engines. You have a, underneath the throttle quadrant, you have electrical deserts. And the sort of things slide around like that. Yeah. 
and it waters electric power, and then it goes along a little electric wire, and it goes to the engine. Where there's another one, it goes. To, and there's now a little rod now opens the fuel. Uh, the controls aren't connected to the control surfaces. They're con they're linked to trimmer tabs. So you vary the trimmer tabs. Then when you go like that, that pushes that down, which is the same as going like that. Yep. Yep. You know. So your controls aren't actually linked to... Because when the Britannia starts its takeoff run, everything is drooped. The elevator is hanging down, the ailerons are hanging down. And when you get to 80 knots, they start with flying speed. And they all come up. Wow. Incredible. But it was a, it was a, it was a, a technically, it was a bloody difficult airplane. But for when it was built and designed and contrived, it was very advanced piece of kit. Very advanced piece of kit. Okay. But say, and by comparison, anything you find since then is dead easy. <laughs> and it, it had drooping bogies, and you could come in there and you think, got it hacked. And you literally sort of pull back, pull back the power, and you were two inches above the ground, and she go, boom, <laughs> <laughs> smash into the concrete. And I was very lucky because I seemed to be very lucky. Because the only time I really did, because it was with a friend of mine, and I was taking one from Salal, which now had a concrete runway, up to Muscat. And I was trying to impress him, and I bloody it's the only time I crashed the Boeing Britannia on the ground because I was trying to show my mate <laughs> that I could do it, <laughs> and I really made a pig's ear of it big time. Uh, but you know he won't remember because he died a couple of years back. <laughs> but they say the, 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 the Brit was a lovely airplane, and that was the military gave me that, and I flew it in Suey Street. Yeah, oh, very cool. And. As time goes on, of course, and I think most of the guys you talk to, they've got easier airplanes to fly. Yeah. Um, so much so now that everybody is convinced, because they've got a computer program, that they can fly a 747 or a 380 tomorrow. Yeah. Which leads to a little source of danger. Because a lot of the guys coming to fly now think that. Yes. Yeah. There's a mental attitude of... But, you know, you've learned in a simulator, and if it happens in the real thing, you don't walk away from it. That's right. And I, I don't know whether I've got it right or not, but sometimes when I'm a mental attitude about these guys now. I mean, like this RF pilot has just been done, being court-martialed now with this Voyager, which is an Airbus 330. Well, he cut his camera off, and it jammed on the stick and he, his seat went forward and jammed it and put yeah. it in the thing and the nose died. Yeah. But again you say, I got everybody telling me, oh it was going down at 15,000 feet a minute. No. Oh, yeah, no. I said, if you can get a jet airplane to go down faster than 6,000 feet a minute, you're going to die because the wings have fallen off. Yeah. I said, the maximum you can bring these babies down is about five and a half. That's all they'll do. You go up to buddy VNO and that's the maximum you'll get it. It won't go down fast enough. So that's the biggest problem. When you're flying at 45,000 feet, you've got 30,000 feet. It takes you seven minutes to get down to where you've got a sustainable height on oxygen. Yeah. And one of the, the things they give you in the thing is you get partial oxygen failure. And you think, we're going to lose a few passengers here because we're going to lose the oxygen. Yeah, because after four minutes, you start to die. Yeah, yeah. But this is it, see. It takes you seven minutes, eight minutes to come down to 14,000, which is the maximum height you can start yeah. saying well people can breathe on their own yeah and, but you know but in the paper it's how oh, i read it in the paper he was coming down, that guy was coming down at fifteen thousand feet. a minute i said i'll tell you what if you get a fighter and stick it on its nose 
and come down vertical and you bang on the power, you're not going to get 16,000 feet a minute out of it. Mm. Yeah. I said, in fact, a fighter will go up faster. I said, a lightning will go to 60,000 feet in a minute. I said, but you won't get it to come down in a minute. Yeah. Oh, the wings on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the media these days. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Mike. It's, okay, uh, yeah. it's been well, unfortunately, too. a lot of them, you know, their stories and a bit disjointed, but, you know, I had a great time, great fun, met yeah. a lot of super people, met some assholes, well, <laughs> yeah. only occasionally. Yeah. And I say, I was very lucky at the time that I was flying, I started flying <coughs> what, 1959 as a glider pilot. I met a load of blokes from the war, which you met. And, spoke to yeah. and yeah. all the ones that survived not so the best of the bunch but they did survive some of the best guys died yeah. and that always happens in war <coughs> actually one last thing that occurs to me before we finish um, did you do some flying in New Zealand you brought an aircraft yeah. out to New Zealand tell me about the, your, your trip to New Zealand when you well, basically, we bought an aircraft down in 1966, which was an Argosy. What we didn't know at the time was that, I only found this out afterwards, that the Air Force already decided to get rid of the Argosy, and it was going to go out in four to five years' time. And we were now had a sort of surplus number of Argosy, because we had squadrons in the Far East, which were going back to the UK, yep. and being disbanded, like 215 squadron and 105 squadron in the Middle East. Um, we came out to New Zealand and we did this tour of New Zealand, which because we had two crews, we decided, myself and the other first officer, co-pilot, decided could we get off at Auckland, so we actually hired a car and drove around North Island. Yeah. But what they were trying to do was actually get the ONZAF to look at it. To buy them? To buy them, yeah. Which we didn't know at the time. Okay. It was just basically to sort of demonstrate the airplane, what it's got. And it was good, but you see, the aircraft could do 2,000 miles <coughs> if it didn't carry anything. But if you had a decent payload, you'd only do 600 miles. But if you did a, a, a supply drop with all the heavy equipment and all that sort of thing involved, you'd only do 400 miles. But if you did that, I mean, when we operated out of Borneo, we were only going 60, 70 miles in country, yeah. doing eight ton drop, coming back, getting another eight tonne and doing a turnaround in 30, 40 minutes, refuel and then going again. And in that respect, it was a good airplane. Yeah. But I say that's the reason we came out to New Zealand. Um, and, you know, say 1966, went over to Rotorua, went up to Toronto and all these sort of places, yeah. which are totally different to what they are now. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, it was said when we came here, that it's like um, you've got to think middle the middle of the 1930s for New Zealand, you think? Yeah. But it was. Um, I mean, the 60s were happening, although we didn't know much about it, because of course I was in the Far East. I went in the beginning of the 60s, I was training. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't have time to go off and do the discos and all that. Well, I didn't have discos, but, you know, yeah. do all this you know, swing in the 60s yeah. bit. And then the second half of it, I was out in the Far East. Right. But uh, New Zealand was a lovely country, lovely people. I mean, I, I think I've told you that we... When we hired a car, we were told, if you put in takes and flows, get well off the road. Why is that? You know, we're going to get mugged or we're mugging, you know, we're going to get attacked or robbed. No, well, you'll find out. 
because lo and behold, Dickie and I and pulled off the road one day, and we were coming up with the Carmine's accident. And the next four cars all stopped behind you up, mate. Do you want a hand? Can I help you? I don't know if it happened now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and of course the roads were not much worse than they are now in bits. Um, but I mean, I mean, when I first drove, I mean, when I came out in 77, the road from uh, Rotorua up towards Tarong, it was a gravel road. Yeah, I remember a lot of I mean, when we drove the other, well, we went out, Mike and I, we went out State Highway 38. Woo! Yeah, I, I remember a lot of the uh, roads between towns that yeah. might not be travelled that often um, were like that even in, well into the 80s. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're lucky these days. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, when I came out, I say we didn't do much flying around. I mean, but the actual aircraft went, went to went Fenilapai, Fenilapai to Napier, Napier down to Tanaki, Tanaki down to Airfield, what's it down at Wigram, 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 down there, and went down South Island, just basically, and. Doing best and telling the RNZAF what the aircraft and the New Zealand Ministry of Defence, what it was, what the aircraft was capable of doing. Right. They say, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, the captains probably knew, but as a first officer, yeah. we didn't know. Yeah. Basically, we just said, what? And of course, they were doing demonstrations as well. And we thought, we're not going to get a look in here. And when we asked, well, can we get off? They said, yeah, okay. So we had a nice little holiday for a week a bit. <laughs> Did it get zapped? Did it get zapped? No, nope. no, nope, didn't. No. Wow, that was slipping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's lots and lots of photos coming out of the woodwork on my forum of mm. uh, visiting aircraft from that period all the way through. Right? It yeah. even happens now. But oh, we used to do it all the time. On it and, yeah, yeah. We, used to, we, used to, we used to have uh, AAA for the Argosy detachment, associated Argy Airways in, in um, the Middle East. And the whole thing that is VIP BC 10 come through. When we got the top, you know, on the VC10, they got the big bulb at the front yep. on, the, on the tailplane. Well, we put one right in the middle of that. <laughs> that did not go down well. <laughs> I think the best one um, that I've seen is in the 1970s, and it was uh, uh, one of the Vulcans that came out here, and they, they put a Kiwi roundel on it. Mm. There's loads of photos that everyone took a photo of. Yeah. And it just looked brilliant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the big thing is that everybody used to do it, and nobody minded it. Mm. But, of course, you know, the official dome always does get all uptight about it, but... Yeah. I mean, as far as the guys were concerned, they used to go in, you know, it's like nicking squadron tires and nicking bits of, you know, stuff, which we all used to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is the Aussies, because they've got no sense of humour. So, <laughs> if you do it with the Aussies, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I remember once we were up at uh, Butterworth, and I think it's 75 squadron up there. Yeah. And they, they, they when they had sabres, and anyway, we went to happy hour at four o'clock, bucks hour they call it, so you see, and of course, they have these little glasses about this big, which are solid blocks of ice, yeah. and we said, well, have you got any pint glasses? Pint, yeah. Yeah, those. Well, they're not cold. They want them cold. Well, your beer's piss anyway, but, you know, pour it in there, you know, pint of it. <laughs> what? So, of course, we were sitting, drinking the pint, these Aussies go, Mrah. Bloody palms, you just can't take it, you know, knocking this chug like Well, of course, at seven o'clock, the bar closes right. for now while they have dinner because they can't drink and eat at the same time, obviously, because it's a bit 
stressful for the brain, I suppose. To say. <laughs> um, so at eight o'clock, the bar opens again, and of course, all these bugs they all disappear. So we carried on drinking our pints. At about two o'clock in the morning, went down to their rooms, and we found a, a big log, and we knocked every single door off its hinges. He <laughs> said, hello, chaps. The Air Force goes for endurance. Not one of these quick flashes like you jokers do. <laughs> Bloody base commander went berserk. <laughs> we literally took about, must have been about 12 doors off, all the officers, practically all the pilots, and, and the, the, the sabre squad took all the doors off the hinges. <laughs> Wasn't there one where, um, when you were in Aussie, I think you were in Aussie and there was a bar fire or something? Oh yeah, yeah, that was, um, <clears throat> that was at, um, what do you call it? Um, bloody hell, up in the north. Darwin. Darwin. That was the RF base at Darwin. Yeah, well, that was. We went there and we were taking the Far East power team out to Canberra and Sydney Air Show. And Laverton, I think, we were showing as well. Yeah. And on the way out, so we went in the bar and we got in there sort of fairly late at night and I think, that, again, it was a Mirage squad. I think that might have been 75. They converted now to bloody Mirages. Yeah. And they were sort of all chugger-lugging and that sort of thing. And um, they were squirting lighter fluid down the bar. And when we were going to pick a beer, you go, put a lighter, it goes, and of course the lighter fluid lights out and it goes out. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Anyway, Swash Wackett, who was a captain, had disappeared. And I was stood there with myself, one of the navigators, and a couple of Far East Free Fall guys. And this bloke comes in, he's got over and he's mopping the floor, you see. And I said, if you guys don't want any trouble, I should leave now. And they said, why is that? I said, because this guy is washing his floor with neat fuel, petrol. And they said, no. I said, smell. So I said, you better leave now. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, and of course, they used to have a brick on the thing there, matches, because everybody used to smoke. Yeah. The whole lot went up, and all of a sudden, and then when it went up, I started singing Happy Birthday Australia. <laughs> <coughs> and they suddenly realised, and then all of a sudden, fire extinguishers came out, and they put put the fire out, and then, and then we had a good time. And then, and then I got challenged by the squadron leader for a bloody schooner race. So he said, right, you know, line up. I said, no, no, no. I'm the challenge party. I get to choose the weapons. And he said, well, what do you choose? I said, pints of, of champagne. He said, oh. what? <laughs> I said, yeah. So they got the equivalent of you know, Australian champagne. They poured out a bloody pint. And they said, on your marks, get set, go. And of course, he picks the thing up, goes, tuk, 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 tuk. Well, the big thing is champagne. There's no way in the middle of the years you can chug it out. Like so I just go, <laughs> and the goes, oh, wimp, you know, and this guy's got, and he must have got, I give him his juice, so that's a pint. He got down about there, yeah. and all of a sudden his face went bloody green. I remember he'd been drinking and all that, I think, he went green, and next thing he's outside, and it was high level, you know, it was up, up top, yeah. and he's bloody spewing his guts all over the place. You know. And I said, that's the trouble, you Australians, you just can't take the drink. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> That was that. I mean, I spewed later when nobody was looking, but... <laughs> Next morning, we taxi out. And all of a sudden, we see this bloody car coming down the taxiway towards us. And a bloody flag in front of there, you know. And, and the Argus, we shot this nose door. So, so, it stopped right in front of us. So, 
swatted it. Like, what the hell's going on? Go out and find out what the hell this staff guy looks like. Station commander, what's up? Yeah. Get back to dispersal. So we get back to dispersal. This is bloody Australian hunter. Right. One of you blokes did it. I've had a report, you know, tell her, tell her. One of you, tall, dark-haired, blue-eyed bloke, six foot tall, burnt down the officer's mess last night. And of course, look around, guess who's the only blue-eyed, six foot tall, dark-haired bloke? Yeah. And Swash looks at Anyway, we went back there, and, and he said, he tore into me, you, you'll be court-martialed, you'll never fly again, you're out of the Air Force, you'll they'll be each other. And I said, and, and eventually I said, put my hand out, and he said, I said, can I say something, sir? And he said, why are you? I said, can I just say something? I said, I had breakfast in the officer's mess before this, and so did the rest of the crew. I said, I don't know which officer's mess you're talking about, but the one we stayed in was perfectly okay. And he said, no, it's burnt down. I have reports. And it appears some toffee-nosed bloody officer reported this thing. You know? yeah. but he'd run out when the fire started, and right. he'd run away. Right. And then in the morning, he was in station. And when the station commander, he said, all the RAF guys burnt the officer's mess down last night. Anyway, we were delayed, and uh, when I went down to Alice, Swat was bloody furious about it, because we got to Alice Springs, and, uh, and of course in those days you didn't have, you used to have 122.1, you go across, you know, calling up Catherine, you know, Tennant's Creek and all that, as you went down the airways, and yep. um, we landed that thing, and Swat was really peed off with me, and he said, right, when we get there, the first thing you do is go, probably pushing across that town, and chat them up, and get a clear, because we're bloody running, you know, an hour behind now, because of you. Because I ran out the airplane and I sort of suddenly realized I was tripping over things and there was things going up my nose. And all of a sudden, the stops and this bloke says, You know, this is Radio 5BX. Are you fly an officer cater. Can you tell us how you burnt down the officer's mess at Darwin last night? And I said, <laughs> so, And then, are we going a television program at bloody Sydney? And of course, we were, going to, and we were there and we briefed all the questions and all that. And we sort of sat there and then all of a sudden, the guy goes, Okay, now we're going. When the lo- we're on the air, you see, we're Now then, fly an officer cater. I believe that you were responsible for burning down the officer's mess at Darwin night. And I thought, this, is, this is not being the rehearsal, nothing. So. Yeah. And of course, we're dead scared that this is going to get back to Singapore. And yeah. Anyway, we had this, you know, when we got to Laverton, they even offered to pay me to burn down their officer's mess. <laughs> but on the way back, when we got to Darwin, they put us in a hotel. <laughs> we didn't stay in the officer's mess. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that was my, you know, and of course, it's, we're desperately trying to keep the lid on the bloody thing that, you know, what, that anything had happened. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things we also did was when we did the Canberra air show, they said, well, you're the first to take off. And they said, yeah, and you'll be landing five hours later. I said, what? And they said, you know, yeah, but what you do is, before things start up, I want you to do tactical takeoff, climb up, and then we'll do the fly pass. They'll disappear off. And then we want the Far East pre-fall team to come in, parachute in. That's the way the display goes. And then you go, but we can't fit into land. Nope. Well, normally what we should drop them, because when they're on the ground, we descend and we go past them. And as they stand, they all line up, slew, and the aircraft fires behind them, yep. which is the same way the Falcons have been doing it ever since. But, yep. um, no. So we said, what do? So he said, well, come fly somewhere. And he said, well, so Swash sort of turned around and said, well, can we go up the coast? And he said, yeah. And he said, fly up and down the coast. He said, yeah, if you want to. He said, what height can we go? He said, what height do you want? You can have any height you want. So he said, below 500 feet. And he said, okay, yeah, cleared. Cut it on the air traffic. So we were cleared to go spend five hours up and down the Australia, which we duly did. 
And we're getting a bit bored with this. I mean, there's one picture of us actually flying along. Actually, it appeared on Buddy News of, of the Arctic, and we're flying, and we're below the tops of the mast of these yachts out there. Yeah. And we could try to, we had to stamp on that as well, you know, because we thought we'd get caught marshal for that. <laughs> but one of the things we did, there was a little place called Kulangata. Well, Kulangata had a little, little landing strip. I mean, we're talking about a thousand foot yeah. concrete. So we called up, and so I said, come on, see if we can do a touch and go. Now remember we'd operated out in the Far East and done all sort of Pacific Islands and all this sort of thing, so we're used to these short strips and things like that. Anyway, called up Cool and Gat and said, you know, this is Raphael and I think, can we come and do a touch and go at your place? You know, we're at the, uh, the what's it? Amberley, Fairburn. Fairburn is the, Fairburn air show, you know, we've got to wait for our landing slot to come in, okay? And he said, yeah, you know, great mate, what are you? We said, uh, Run Argosy, Royal Air Force Argosy. Oh, yeah, great, okay, yeah, well, come on in, you know, just call us when you're at short fire. It's got nothing in the circuit, nothing about it, you know, just do it, come and go, you know, just come do touch and go. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we hove out, and they obviously we'd well, what's in Argosy? Well, that's a light twin or something, is it? No, no, I think it's a piston engine thing, you know. And of course, we'd say, we just literally we hit the deck, and as soon as we hit the deck, it was power on and yeah. went, you know, we, yeah. we, didn't, we bounced, we didn't actually do a touch, we just bounced. You know? Jesus Christ, what the hell are you? <laughs> you know, we nearly took the tower out because it was so close to the runway. <laughs> I just didn't realise what we were. But as he pressed the button, said, Jesus Christ, what the hell are you? <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, but again, a lot of it, he said, we used to, those days you do things, and he kept quiet about it. You know, yeah. nobody sort of spread the, you know, that you'd sort of been a bit naughty. Yeah. Exactly. These days it's straight up on YouTube or oh, yeah. Facebook or something. Yeah, exactly. No one gets away with anything yeah, these days. Uh, well, I suppose I'm going to go home and let those dogs out because I've got to go and feed the dogs. Right. Well, thank you very much. It's okay. been really, really okay, good. Okay, I don't know if it's recorded. Yeah. Yeah, great. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.